Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Sybil. And I'm Poppy. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're wrapping up our holiday rom-com series with a classic Hollywood musical. We'll discuss the history of the best-selling song of all time, its immigrant songwriter, its most well-known singer, and the song's connection to World War II. And we'll talk about snow and whether or not it's part of our Christmas dreams as we explore the 1954 Technicolor musical, White Christmas. Hey, Sybil. Hey, Jen. I'm super excited to be here for our last Christmas episode of the year. And I'm super excited to have you. I'm very excited to be here. And also, I'm excited that this has happened. I know we rescheduled this so many times, (laughs) but I I wanted to make sure we actually got it in because this is one of my favorite films. Yeah, we actually had to reschedule this because we couldn't do it last year because we ran into problems. So I was starting to worry about this episode. Actually, I shouldn't even say that until we're done. Let, let's... I was not going to say anything. I was like, no, don't say it. Everything could still go sideways. But it's also very good that we had to wait for a whole year because because we waited for a whole year, we have a new guest joining us on the show today. And this time our guest is from another podcast that often deals with the romantic comedy genre. Our guest today, Poppy is the writer and host of the Confessions of a Closet Romantic podcast, which covers not only romantic movies, but also books, TV shows, and sometimes just topics dealing with romance in our lives. Her show runs the gamut from reviews and analysis of media like Netflix's Persuasion and Gentleman Jack to such spicy topics as a recent episode on how to build a sex room. And outside of podcasting, Poppy has had a career as varied and intriguing as the topics on her podcast. She's been a musical comedy actress, a nanny, and a chef. She's done book marketing for a large publishing house and reviewed books. She's written features for a newspaper, assisted on film sets, and she's done publicity and author programming for a large library system. But today, she's producing her podcast full-time, which is really lucky for all of her listeners. And Poppy, I know that you're like just as excited about the romantic comedy genre as we are and just as excited about White Christmas as we are. So thank you so much for joining us on Every Rom-Com today. Oh, this is such a thrill. I love your pod. I love how you all get down and dirty and nerdy about romance. You (laughs) are people after my own heart. So it is a thrill. Cannot wait to talk about this movie. Yeah, and I really admire your podcast, too. And like the breadth of topics that you cover on it is just amazing. I really advise our listeners to go and give it a listen themselves. We'll put all that in the show notes, of course. And we're going to ask you some questions about it now, if you you don't mind. I would love it. So I noticed, I think, like, I can't remember exactly when you started your podcast, but I think it was a little earlier than we started ours, but around the same time. And I was wondering what made you start your podcast and what was your inspiration for it? No lie, y'all. I thought about starting a podcast. So I started it in around Labor Day of 2020. 
right as the pandemic had started, and I had thought about doing a podcast or getting into audio. I was always fascinated with it for 10 years and kept bouncing around on topics. What should I do? I have so many interests. How can I at all boil this down to just one podcast show? What can I do? And then I watched Outlander because I was dying to watch something absorbing and epic during the pandemic. And I got out of that I swear, y'all, I lost my mind for a month. I watched that show straight through uh, that May of that year. And I kind of woke up afterwards and I was like, what just happened to me? I got sucked into this romance. How did that happen? And then realized that I have loved romance all my life, but I used to feel ashamed of loving it. Like people are like, do you have a college degree? Like, how do you read that crap? And I'd be like, crap. It's about relationships and connection. Every human being is interested in that. So it just got me annoyed that I even felt a little ashamed when I thought about doing a romance podcast. It made me determined after I had that feeling that's what I'm going to talk about. So I talk about my shame-free love of romance out loud to the whole world now. (laughs) So your podcast is called Confessions of a Closet Romantic. So Mm -hmm. have you felt then pressure to remain in that romantic closet? Like, was that part of your experience? Or did you just take the heat from people? You, I didn't want to take the heat. I was kind of sick of it because I loved romance from the time I was like, 15, 16 years old, my grandma gave me her old Harlequin romances. And I used to read them under the streetlight with my friend at night on summer nights. And it was like, why are we reading this stuff in the dark? Like, (laughs) what's the issue here? Uh, You know, everybody loves sex and romance. And, you know, how many love songs have been written in the world? You know, everybody's fascinated by the topic. Why are we reading this stuff in secret? And so my first intro for the show used to sort to go, I'm going to talk about this shame-free and without embarrassment, mostly. And I really did. You can tell I was very nervous in the beginning about taking a seat at the table and speaking out loud about something I loved. And then the more I did the show, it was like a personal growth thing. I just gradually kind of just didn't care if somebody thought I was being silly or gushy or whatever about it. I just decided I loved it and I was going to talk about it. I love that. I love that. And that kind of actually relates to another question I was going to ask you. So it seems like it's been like a personal like growth experience or just like feeling better about yourself and your interests. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, like, what are some other things that you've learned or discovered about romance since beginning your podcast? Well, one thing I learned, so I had always read romance, but um, in later years, I really preferred romantic shows or movies. But Starting the podcast got me into indie romances. And when I started reading indie romances, I realized that there is the widest scope of characters, sexual orientations, gender explorations, just like a wide variety of people represented in romance. And I think people on the outside of the genre would not assume that to be the case because they often think romance, oh, 70s and 80s bodice rippers with those kind of racy Fabio covers. I think that's what a lot of people assume the genre still is. So it was a beautiful um, discovery that the genre is, um, it, it still has work to do in some areas, of course 
course, but there is a wide, wider range of representations. So I got exposed, like I read a romance with a trans main character, and I had never read a book like that before. And I was like, this is amazing. So I just have opened myself up to so much like kink in romance and all these ideas that this former Catholic schoolgirl literally, really, honestly, had never really read a lot about, you know, and it's been a growth area for myself in reading and encountering these themes in romance and then growing as a person to the point where I hang out with erotica and kink writers on Twitter now, you know, which this former Catholic schoolgirl would have never thought would have happened, but it has. And it's fantastic. Wow. Mm. I have a question for you, Poppy. Uh, yeah. Was the book Lady for a Duke? Was that your trans book that you read, Lady for oh, a Duke? No, it was a um, Christina Milan. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's something me. It's yeah, like yeah. A, do you know? Okay. And then also, um, uh, what's her first name? Zabo is her last name. And it was a trans man who was uh, security to a rock band and he falls in love with the lead singer and she is this like amazing like patty smith type just doesn't give any flying fucks anymore kind of rock star and they are so hot together and i was like holy cow this was <laughs> anna isn't it anna zabo i think it's anna zabo well, well i'll have to find those titles for you all for the show notes but sure. yeah th- those were the two and i was like these are the hottest stories wow so in terms of like um we're doing a really older classic movie today. And that seems to relate to your personal interest because you said in your bio that you have a particular love of classic movies. And you also asked us to ask you about Cary Grant. Um, <laughs> what are, where did you get your love for classic movies and what are some of your favorites in that genre? You know, I was kind of like a lonely, nerdy kid. I grew up in a family of five kids and my parents were always so busy and we were left to our own devices and books were my friend. And I used to watch older movies like on The Late Show. Remember in the days when they used to actually play classic movies? on oh, yeah. broadcast they, TV. Also, they had them on AMC. We had a whole channel that used to be yes. it, it was the American mo- cla- movie classics, right? Yeah, they, they changed it all over. But that's oh. what that's what it used to be. Mm-hmm. It was very accessible. It was like part of the culture. It was like a blend of old and new. And I loved it. And I don't know, I think it was the strength of the storytelling. I always loved black and white. I thought visually the cinematography was beautiful. I think the writing has always been strong, you know, in classic Hollywood writing is just incredible. And then it was the acting style, which was a little bit sometimes heavy handed and dramatic, but yeah. There was something about it that I found very affecting and just the solid chops in Hollywood for telling a compelling visual story. And I would get sucked into these movies and I'd think, I love those clothes. Look how they used to wear their hair. So it was like a history lesson too. And I fell in love. You know, everyone else was like, I don't know, David Cassidy. Oh, you know, (laughs) and I was like, oh, hell, Carrie, give me Carrie Grant. I mean, (laughs) this was like from the time I was 15 years old. I just thought he was funny and sharp looking and he dressed so well and he was so witty. I just fell for him and I have never stopped loving him all these years later. 
Wow. Yeah. Like we talked about in the Philadelphia story, I'm more of a Jimmy Stewart girl myself, but <laughs> yeah. okay, listen, you have it, a lot of company. You have a lot of there, company. There is no competition. I, I consider them, there's two pedestals and I consider them both at the top. I mean, honestly, they're, they're both amazing. Like Jimmy Stewart just moves my heart so much, <laughs> you know? And do you have like a, a top three classic movie or would that be too hard to like Oh determine? God, it changes every day. But I think for sure there would always be a Cary Grant movie, a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie, and a World War II era movie like The Best Years of Our Lives or Mrs. Miniver is another one. And then I have all sorts of categories in my mind, which I won't bore you with, but it's <laughs> like best crybaby weeper film from classic Hollywood, which would be, you know, Random Harvest and um, now Voyager. You know, there yeah. th there are just so many in my mind. There are just so many categories, but um, I love that they're all there waiting for anyone to discover them. They're oh, preserved yeah. and they're there. And I encourage people to do it. Yeah, we definitely, I definitely want to cover more of the older movies on our show in the future. We're going to be doing a musical series next year. Oh. So that should give us a chance to get at least a few more in. So, yeah. Oh, my God. That's going to be amazing. So, so but still kind of rom-com, the oh, musical. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, God. Fantastic. And, and speaking of the future, um, do you have any special topics that are coming up on your show? Thank you for asking. I did plan on doing a little mini episode on snowed in romances because um, in all classic films, I usually focus on kitchens and fireplaces. I have a huge thing for these in classic movies. And I thought, God, I love a story set in a remote cabin and people are snowed in. So I'm kind of working on that. And I do have an episode coming up on Moulin Rouge Ooh. and uh, romances that end unhappily yeah. instead of the HEA, even though they end they end sadly, but well for the story and the characters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love mm -hmm. Moulin Rouge. So I will, I will eagerly await that. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, where can people, where would you like to send people to find your work? Oh, they can find um, more about me and all my past episodes at confessionsofaclosetromantic.com. Excellent. And I will definitely put the links to your work in the show notes as well. And yeah, and now I'm very excited because we're going to get to talk about our movie together and we'll get to hear <laughs> a lot more from you. So. <laughs> so before we get started today, a few notes. First, as usual, there will be a spoiler free section at the beginning of the episode, but I do want to give everyone a heads up that it will be a shorter spoiler free section than usual. We will warn you, though, when the spoilers are about to begin. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom. And our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's listen to a part of the trailer for White Christmas. And 
never saw the sun shine so bright, never saw things go so right. Notice in today's hurry and by when you're in love, my, my, how they fly. Lord, help the mister who comes between me and my sister. And Lord, help the sister who comes between me and my man. The two greatest figures in show business, Bing and Danny, as two ex-GIs who form the perfect partnership. Rosemary and Vera Ellen as the sisters who have them in a spin. With Dean Jagger as the unemployed general they take under their wing. Apparently there's still quite a bit about show business I don't understand. Oh, it'll come to you, sir. Just takes time. We wouldn't be any good as generals. You weren't any good as privates. A wonderful story that will warm your hearts just as the breathtaking scope of a new screen wonder will widen your eyes. White Christmas in Vista Vision. And you'll fall asleep Counting your blessings All right, so White Christmas was released October 14th, 1954. It was directed by Michael Curtiz. It was written by Norman Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. It stars Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and Vera Ellen. And the music and lyrics are by Irving Berlin. The basic premise for the film is Bob Wallace and Phil Davis, who are our main stars, are singer-dancers who meet during World War II when Phil saves Bob from a falling building. I think it's important to note that Bob was also already kind of famous and when he was you know, singing and dancing in the military, apparently. After the war, Wallace and Davis work together and, and become like star performers. They also start producing and they have like a whole like business together. Phil is sick of working all the time though. So he wants Bob to meet a girl so that they can you know, have lives that are beyond their show business lives. When Phil and Bob meet Betty and Judy, they're, those are two sisters who are doing this dancing act. They are also the sisters of one of their like old buddies from the military. So they decide that they're going to go out and meet them. They plan to follow the sisters. So Phil decides that he's going to go follow the sisters to Vermont because, you know, they kind of get into each one of them. They're like into the, the different sisters. They arrive in Vermont and it turns out that the owner is the general, their old, old general, and also he's struggling because there is no snow. I mean, what is Vermont and Christmas without snow? Like, what are you supposed to do? So he's kind of failing at business. The men are now determined to stay at the inn to spend time with the sisters and to kind of help the general make a busy Christmas season so that he's successful. Yep. Yep. So there's a lot to know about this movie. Um, it's going to be kind of spread throughout the episode, but I'll give you some facts about the movie at the top of the episode. So first of all, White Christmas was a very successful film. It was the top grossing film of 1954. And this is an interesting thing. For the older movies, sometimes you get two different numbers. It says that it grossed $30 million, but then it also sometimes you'll see that it grossed $12 million in theatrical rentals. I don't 100% understand the distinction there, but I think it's like the theaters would pay the company like $12 million to rent it out. And then $30 million is how much was made total on the movie. I don't know exactly. Anyway, it was the number one movie of 1954, which is the most important fact. Uh, a lot of the success of the movie was probably due to the prior collaboration between Irving Berlin and Bing Crosby. So the 1942 movie Holiday Inn, and then especially the enormously popular song White Christmas, which first appeared in that movie. So yeah, this movie 
is really playing off of the success of that song, just having it right there in the title. And we'll talk more about the movie Holiday Inn and the song White Christmas later in the episode. So originally the movie White Christmas was going to re-team Holiday Inn stars Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Uh, they had also appeared in the movie Blue Skies together, but Astaire did not want to have a third go around, I guess. He turned down the role. Instead, the role was then given to Donald O'Connor, but he became sick right before filming. And that's how we end up with Danny Kaye, who is third choice for this role. But I think he's fantastic. Oh. So, Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I can't really imagine the movie without Danny Kaye. It, for me it wouldn't be as goofy that's for sure because neither of those other actors are are in in they're not physical comedians and they're not goofy yeah mm-hmm. and he has like a sort of youth about him too even though he wasn't super young he has he brings kind of a youthful presence and then in terms of the women in white christmas crosby suggested singer rosemary clooney for the role of his love interest betty and choreographer Bob Alton suggested Vera Ellen for Judy. And she really performs the bulk of the film's dance numbers. She's really carrying the weight there. Um, so there's a lot of interesting age differences in this movie. Um, first of all, Vera Ellen is playing the younger sister, but she was actually older than Rosemary Clooney. Vera Ellen was 33. Clooney was 26. And then we get the difference between the love interest. Bing Crosby was 25 years older than Rosemary Clooney at 51 years old. And Danny Kaye was 10 years older than Vera Ellen at 43. But this is the one that really got me. So Dean Jager, who's playing this like old retired general, is actually a few months younger than Bing Crosby. <laughs> Which if, if I, I notice hair stuff all the time. Um, and if you look at the graying of his hair, it's absolutely terrible. Like you can tell that he has a wonderful, rich like head of hair that's probably maybe a little pe- salt and pepper, but is not like the white that they make it. <laughs> Anyway, he does a great job in that role, Dean Jager, though. So, yeah. Love him. And then Vera Ellen did not sing in the movie. Trudy Stevens provided her vocals. Mm -hmm. And this is the first film released, as we mentioned, in VistaVision. So that was a widescreen process that used a larger negative, and the film went through the camera horizontally. I don't 100% understand how this stuff works, but basically it's meant to be a high-resolution 35-millimeter format that improves clarity. And apparently this was like part of a trend of these new film film mm-hmm. methods that was supposed to compete with the rise of television and get people back into the theater. Poppy, you're saying mm-hmm, like, you know, something oh, yeah. more about this. No, I, I looked I looked into that just briefly. And there was something about, you know, so in the 50s, it was uh, Cinerama and all sorts of different kind of um, curved screens that kind of put you in the action. But the appeal, apparently, and I think it was Paramount invented VistaVision, the um, appeal was that any kind of a movie house could play the negative. Like they didn't have to have a special camera or special screen. So that was why it appealed to all of the um, movie theaters showing this particular technique. But yeah, it attracted people. It's like bigger than your, what was the biggest TV screen that 19 inch or something? Probably not even that big. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Something crazy. But yeah. But, and you have to remember that color is is something really new. For film, especially, you could see things in color where most people, even if they had a TV, it was still black and white. That is correct. And I want to talk to you guys about the color of this film because I just, yeah, the colors are so rich and obviously it's seasonally appropriate, but that the men, you know, it's military, the story, it's, it, that's a very important theme of this movie. It's like 
drab green gray blues if you look at the set white for the snow yeah but then if you look at the women's costumes it's beautiful it's kind of shades of red it's red mm-hmm. on rosemary clooney and then it's like pink and corals and ivories and and the men are wearing bark brown and kind of grays and bluey grays it's like it, i just noticed it on this viewing this time around and i was like dang that the set decoration the costumes it all works together so beautifully for that hyper crazy cherry red satin yeah. dress finale yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we've got Edith Head to thanks, thank for those costumes, too, mm. which I wish we could say more about her on this episode, but we will not have time. Mm. She can, yeah, she <laughs> can have a whole, epi- a whole episode under yeah. herself. Yes, that would be fun. So now we're going to talk about some of the other cast and crew, though, that we are going to cover on this episode. And the first person we want, I want to talk about briefly is the director, Michael Curtiz. And Michael Curtiz is a Hungarian-born director. He began directing in Hungary. Then after World War I, he worked in other European countries before moving to the U.S. in 1926. He had in his career 178 directing credits in like every genre. And some of his other well-known films are ones I'm sure you've seen. The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, the Errol mm-hmm. Flynn version, of course. The mm-hmm. Sea Wolf, 1941. A little film called Casablanca <laughs> in 1942, and another little film called Mildred Pierce in 1945. Like this dude yeah. directed some of the greats. Oh, huge! Yeah. yeah. And then Curtiz had also previously directed at least two other Irving Berlin musicals. I did not have time to go through all his credits to check for whether any of the other ones were, but a couple stuck out to me. There was Mammy in 1930 which um, originally, I guess, was supposed to be titled Mr. Bones, which, you know, we'll hear a reference to in this movie. And then he directed Irving Berlin, the movie version of Irving Berlin's musical, This is the Army, in 1943. So he had experience with Berlin before. So then um, Curtiz, like when he actually got around to directing White Christmas, was in his late 60s. But he kept going. He kept filming movies basically until he died. Like after White Christmas, some of his other notable work was... We're No Angels, the Elvis film King Creole, and his last film, The Comancheros. And he died from cancer in 1962 at age 75. But yeah, kind of an interesting director. I hadn't really run across his name before. Like you think of Casablanca, people don't say Michael Curtiz right away. They say Bogart. But I think we should give him his credit here. Oh, yeah. True. He w- he was well respected in Hollywood. And he was also pretty much a taskmaster. Like he was he was known for being a bit of a perfectionist, I think. Mm. Um, we're gonna go ahead and move on to Bing Crosby, because, you know, he's mm. a big name. Uh, he plays Bob Wallace. And from what I can tell, he's essentially just playing himself like in this role. Mm-hmm. So he was born in 1903. He grew up in a Catholic household in Tacoma and Spokane, Washington, which, hey, we all know where that is. Mm -hmm. He started singing and playing drums in a band during college and then began performing in a vaudeville act in L.A. in the mid-20s. In 1931, Crosby had a big break getting his own radio show. It ran for 30 years and at its most popular attracted 50 million listeners. May we attract 50 million listeners. (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs) During his singing career, he's had over 300 hit singles, recorded 1,600 songs, and sold almost a billion records. I mean, who has not heard of Bing Crosby, right? (laughs) (laughs) Some of his most well-known hits include Brother Can You Spare a Dime, 
Pennies from Heaven, My Blue Heaven, and of course his Christmas songs, including White Christmas. In 1945, Bing Crosby released an album, Merry Christmas. According to the book White Christmas, The Story of an American Song, it's the first Christmas-themed album. His first film appearance was performing music in King of Jazz in 1930. He went on to sign a contract with Paramount and began starring in movies, including Here Is My Heart, 1934, Anything Goes, and Pennies From Heaven, both are from 1936. The 1940s are generally considered to be his most successful decade as an actor. Starting in the 1940s, Crosby made a series of popular comedies with the word road in the title with Bob Hope. Can I ask, can you th- have either of you seen these road movies? I haven't watched yes, any of them. I never even heard of these. They're really? amazing. I'm not a big Bob Hope fan. I think he's like oh, annoying. Oh, then you, <laughs> they have such good chemistry. Like when you see the first one, you realize why they asked them to do all these sequels. I mean, they they were known for the improvisation and breaking the fourth wall and just goofy, like audiences just lap. It was like Jack Benny. You know, they just loved these guys together and they would just lap it up. So, yeah, they were waiting for these guys to crack up and, you know, just riff on the lines. Nice. I'll so check one was, of them out. I will end up. I will definitely check one of these out because I haven't. So seen people any. really enjoyed them just because they knew that they they were kind of they were given like more like free reign to just be comedians. Yeah, it was like they were very powerful at the time, and the two of them they got along so well that audiences knew that they would just do whatever the hell they wanted. It was one of those kind of feelings, like as if they were on live radio and they were just like cracking each other up. It has that same vibe. It's a vibe like. There's a script, but we may or may not follow it. <laughs> right. Know? So it's kind of like um, if you watch like a Jim Carrey film or a Robin Williams film. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're ostensibly about some adventure. They go to Bali or Morocco and, you know, very, very loosely um, storyboarded. But like, it's just about the two of them, basically. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. So the bromance of it all. Totally. Okay. Um, In 1942, he appeared with Fred Astaire in the movie, which made the song White Christmas famous for the first time, Holiday Inn. In 1944, he won an Academy Award for playing a priest in the 1944 movie Going My Way, which is a fantastic movie, by the way. Oh, it's fantastic. And was nominated for playing the same role in its sequel, The Bells of St. Mary's. In 1954, in addition to appearing in White Christmas, Crosby was also nominated for a third Oscar for playing an alcoholic in the country girl. He's very busy. (laughs) Other prominent movie roles after white Christmas include high society, Robin and the seven hoods and stagecoach. In the 1960s and seventies, Crosby shifted most of his energy to making television specials, including hosting the variety show, the Hollywood palace from 1964 to 1970 and hosting a Christmas special with his family each year during the 1970s. In 1977, he famously sang a duet of Peace on Earth and The Little Drummer Boy with David Bowie during his Christmas special. Crosby died of a heart attack in October of 1977. Hmm. Crosby was married twice. His first wife died of cancer in 1952. In 1983, Gary, his oldest son from his first marriage, wrote a memoir which said that Crosby physically abused his sons. His second oldest son supported Gary's story, while the third oldest son and Crosby's and Crosby's children from his second marriage, I know complicated, but that's how it is, said the claims were exaggerated. So it's up to you to make your own decision. 
Yeah, like I read quite a bit about that. And it was like, it's very murky, right? Because like a lot of times, of course, people have very different experiences with the same parents, right? Like, maybe the older kids get things tougher than the younger kids, for example. But then like, also, there was like talk that like the publishing company was trying to get this guy to exaggerate stuff in the books, it would sell more. So Mm. it's really hard to know. And also the the ideas of what was okay for a parent to do with discipline were so different, you know, at that time. Okay, and so now I'm going to talk a little bit about Rosemary Clooney. And Rosemary Clooney plays the female lead, Betty Haynes. And Rosemary Clooney was born in Kentucky in 1928. She was the eldest of five children. And she had a difficult childhood. Her father was an alcoholic. And her mother left the family when Rosemary was 15. And so apparently this is part of what inspired her, though, to go off with her sister and try to earn a living from singing. Um, In 1945, she and her younger sister began singing on the radio and became part of a sister act and toured with a band as the Clooney sisters for several years. So it's kind of fun that like there's a song about a sister act in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, maybe that was probably really common to have a sister act back then, too, though. So Mm -hmm. probably not a huge coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. In 1949, though, Rosemary moved to New York to start a solo career and she signed with Columbia Records. Uh, She didn't really get a choice in what she's saying, apparently. At that time, you just kind of got handed songs. But some of her early hit songs included Come On In My House, Mambo Italiano, Tenderly, and Hey There. And some of those I knew once I played them on YouTube. But honestly, like if I heard those titles now, I'd be like, what? Uh, Mambo Italiano was huge. Yeah. Yeah. But the, and that hey there is one like like hey there you with the stars in your eyes and then and then I was like okay yeah I know what that is now yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and come on to my house that that one too that's an interesting one yeah that apparently she didn't like that one but you know oh, they, she, she just didn't. she just had to sing oh. what she's saying so there you yeah. are yeah. so before White Christmas Clooney had already had big roles in three other movies The Stars Are Singing Here Come the Girls and Red Garters. But White Christmas would remain her biggest, um, most famous film performance because after White Christmas, she only had two other feature films on her IMDb page, which are Deep in My Heart, also from 1954, and Radioland Murders from 1994. And like, I'm super intrigued by Radioland Murders now. I, I really want to check it out. From 1956 to 57, Clooney also began working in TV and she hosted her own variety show. And in 1956, she started recording jazz albums with an album called Blue Rose with Duke Ellington. And apparently, like most of her later music career focused on jazz. So interesting to know, Clooney and Bing Crosby were friends, like good friends over the years. And they ended up recording several albums together, including Fancy Meeting You Here in 1958 and That Traveling Two Beat in 1965. Uh, Other important people in her life included her husband, Jose Ferrer, who she married in 1953. They ended up divorcing, remarrying, and divorcing again by 1967. No. Yeah. And then they had a child together at Miguel Ferrer, who is also an actor. And she had a lot of kind of tragic events in her life. Like in 1968, she was was friends with Robert Kennedy, and she was present for his assassination. And yeah, yeah, she was like right there. And apparently, like, this was kind of the last straw for her. She'd already been having troubles with, like, pill addiction and some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. But after this, witnessing this assassination, that kind of led to her nervous breakdown that she had, like, and she was hospitalized for a while. 
She did recover from her breakdown, though, and she continued performing and putting out albums for the rest of her life. Apparently, like uh, her friend Bing Crosby inviting her to a 1976 50th anniversary concert of his, though, was like a huge part of her comeback. Like she'd gotten kind of a bad reputation because of her addiction, but he mm. kind of like helped bring her back into the public eye. So that's, that's awesome. That's really sweet. Yeah. yeah. And then like after her comeback, she also made a handful of TV appearances during the 80s and 90s. She was on shows including Hardcastle and McCormick, Frasier, and ER. And ER, of course, is significant because her nephew is actually George Clooney. So oh, that might have had something How- to do with it. Yes. <laughs> Um, Clooney wrote two autobiographies over the years, and in 1982, a TV movie was made based on one of them. And she did have kind of a happier end of her life. In 1997, she married a longtime romantic partner, Dante DiPaolo, who was a former dancer. And in 2002, um, she received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, although she did die the same year in June of lung cancer. So... She had a really interesting life. Um, yeah, I was glad to learn something yeah. about her. Yeah, that's really actually fascinating. I guess I just didn't realize that her film career was so short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it wasn't like her. Yeah, she was more of a singer and a performer. Yeah, over the years. Mm. And then we have some other casting crew of note. I wish we could talk about all of them. We do not have time. Danny Kaye plays Phil. Vera Ellen plays Judy. Dean Jager plays Major General Thomas F. Waverly. Mary Wicks, who I love, plays Emma Allen, the housekeeper. Yeah. (laughs) And Irving Berlin does the music and lyrics. And Edith Head is the costume designer. And Bob Alton is the choreographer. So I think what's important about these is that these are all like heavy hitters. These are this is like a huge all-star cast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cast and crew. Yeah. Yeah, and crew, you're absolutely right. The best of the best. Yeah. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll get around to covering some of the others in future episodes. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's now let's, let's talk about our opinion of the movie. So this is still in the spoiler free section. So try not to give away the end of the movie, but just kind of, I want to know when did you first see this movie? Have you watched it a lot over the years and what's your opinion of it? And has your opinion kind of changed over the years in any way? God, I saw this movie so long ago. I don't even remember when I first saw it. I mean, it was definitely always a staple when I was a kid. And it was one of the films that my mother and I would always go to AMC to watch on the big screen at Christmas time. That's, that's nice. Yeah. Wow. So now it's like Love Actually is always reshown. But when I was growing up, it was White Christmas. Yeah. Wow. That's That would be a beautiful big screen experience. It's I gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And um, you're still watching it basically every year? or like- I still watch it every year. I absolutely adore it. And I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine Christmas time without White Christmas. Poppy, how about you? What's your yeah, experience? Yeah, same as Symbol. Like, this is a bookend for me with It's a Wonderful Life. Like, mm-hmm. there, it's not the Christmas season unless I see those two films. And I think I first saw this film, oh, God, way back, 15, 16 years old. And it was funny because I only saw it on the big screen in the last maybe 10 years. And I I was, like, saying to my friend, it's almost psychedelic, the color. It was <laughs> just so overwhelmingly beautiful. And then a friend of mine literally just last year, she's in her late 50s, she went to see the movie and said, I saw White Christmas for the first time. And I said, oh, on the big screen? She said, no, ever. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that was like, I'm sorry, that does not compute. How uh-huh. have you lived this long? Um, so anyway, that was kind of delightful because it's it's just been part of the Christmas wallpaper for me for so long. And I just, I love it. It it gives me the best feeling, like the truest feeling of the holiday for me when I watch mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm kind of like your friend because I didn't see this movie consciously anyway until quite recently maybe maybe even last year when we were preparing the episode because so here's so here's the well yeah it's a wonderful life i grew up with a christmas story i grew up with but um Mm. and like the alistair sims christmas carol until the muppets came along and made the best version ever um but um (laughs) but yeah my mom was like she had a tape of holiday inn and she really liked that Mm. movie so i had seen Mm. holiday inn a whole bunch of times and yeah, we'll talk about the interesting things about that movie later. But um, okay, yeah, the sad, but, but, but yeah, but she really liked Holiday Inn, and like so, I'd seen that movie, and then White Christmas, like yeah, I just I had heard it was just a remake, and I'm like, well, I don't need to see a remake of the same movie I already saw, but it's like way more complicated than that. It's not really a remake at all. So oh, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm really glad I've seen it now. I would say the first time I watched it, um, when I just watched it on a rom-com level, like just for the relationships, I wasn't super impressed by it. But then Mm. the second time I watched it, when I started noticing the war aspect is when it actually became very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. The way the movie connects up with World War II and soldiers' experiences and going back to civilian life and then nostalgia, all all that type of stuff. um, Yeah really was much more meaningful to me and and remains more meaningful to me than the romantic relationships do because mm-hmm. let's face it romantic relationships in the 1950s were um you know limited in what women could expect for the rest of their lives maybe true yeah yeah, true. yeah. but i will say that this test this movie passes the beckinsale test so oh, the bechdel oh yeah did you it just does. call it wait did you just call it the beckinsale test Mom? i did and then i immediately was like Fuck, but oh well that's I hilarious be, i want there to be a beckinsale test now that I, know, I, I actually too. i make fun of it all the time because i always feel like her movies almost always do pass that which is why i always say her okay hmm. interesting you're right. Though. It does pass the Bechdel test. Like mm. I've, I've like paid attention. The women talk to each other about more than like about their relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and they talk about like other things that have nothing to do with men. Like business, what? like they're performing business. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Mm-hmm. Like, like for it. a 50s film, like, or a mm-hmm. 40s film, or whatever, I feel that like it actually is a very well, they have like female well-rounded characters. Well, actually, yeah. And like Anna Billerus says, like I've, we talked about her in the Love Witch episode, like the director Anna Billerus says that those 40s and 50s movies actually often do have much stronger female characters in general, even mm-hmm. though, you know, in real life, women have more opportunities now. So that's interesting. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And they're, they're business women. They yeah. don't need no men. Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. They're, they really are presented as women who have experience in this act. And there's a there's a definite liking for um, Wallace and Davis. I mean, they know them and they know they're famous and they're powerful and might help them. But they're already they've already got their cute little thing going. And you can sense that they're not terribly desperate for that. For yeah. those guys. Yeah. Right. And they, I don't, what I liked about it as well is, you know, a lot of times if this movie made, was made now, those women would be like overly sexual to them and be super flirty and whatever. And they're, yes. they're not, they're just like, this is our job. This is what we do. I mean, you're welcome to like utilize us and maybe you're kind of hot, but like, I'm not jumping in bed with you right now. I find this a very feminist film. Hmm. Oh, I love this theory. 
Yeah, I can see it. I can see what you're saying. I think it's just mm-hmm. like, but it, it's, I don't know. It, it just feels underdeveloped to me in terms of the relationships compared to what you see in like an 80s movie, maybe though. Like like Moons, mm. Moonstruck or When Harry Met Sally or something like I that. Will, which, yeah. yeah. I will agree that for like building of relationships, because I'm going to talk about that later, like when we talk mm-hmm. about the relationships part. But I find that White Christmas isn't about isn't about like the love romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. That's just like a side note to the whatever mm-hmm. all the other stuff that's going on in this film. I think so too. It's really about the strength of relationships, how that got everyone through the war, and how that's the best of America post war, right? Because I, when we get to the end, I want to talk about the end. But um, I think that's a really great point, Sybil, because I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, I think it's about deep friendships as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Okay, so let's um, let's if we're okay with moving on, um, mm. I'd like to talk about we're doing holiday rom coms right now. We're doing a holiday special like series. How do you feel about White Christmas as a Christmas movie? It sounds like both of you. This is a staple Christmas movie. Like, what makes it a Christmas movie to you, though? You know what? For me, I swear to God, the the shot can last two seconds. But if you have a horse drawn sleigh <laughs> and there is fake snow on the on the um, soundstage, yeah, that my friend. Because in Christmas in Connecticut with Barbara Stanwyck, mm-hmm. I think the horse drawn sleigh lasts maybe sixty seconds. That shot, mm-hmm. and I swear it sets up the whole movie for a Christmassy feeling. So for me, there's something about. We can't get into the end yet, but there's something about the way that that ending is staged with the snow and it's just magical to me. Uh, Can't get enough of it. I mean, is it is a like that that whole scene is just like a picture of Christmas as we idolize it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then like the movie only really does have like like two different songs that sort of relate to the Christmas season though. We've got two appearances by white Christmas and then we have the snow song. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to play a clip of the snow song. Would you guys, I love the snow song. Okay. okay. Love Let's it. do it. Snow, 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 snow. It won't be long before we'll all be there with snow, snow, snow. I want to wash my hands, my face in the air with snow. Snow, I long to clear a path and lift a spade of snow. Snow, to see a great big man entirely made of snow. Snow, where it's snowing all winter through. That's where I want to be. Snowball throwing, that's what I'll do. How I'm longing to ski through the snow. Those glistening houses that seem to be built of snow. All right, I'm cutting it off there. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Rosemary Clooney has the most beautifully pitched voice to go with me. I understand why he, he wanted her. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're right, especially in that song. Yeah, oh. that's one of my favorite songs of this film because I love mm-hmm. I love the harmonies of it. Oh, it's gorgeous. Hmm. Yeah, and is that a song like so? White Christmas is obviously heavily associated with Christmas for almost everybody. Is this snow song a song that's associated with Christmas? Hell for yeah, for me. I, oh. I mean, yeah. 
y'all, I grew up in the Midwest and I live in the South now. And I cannot tell you, I do not want to shovel snow. Let me <laughs> make that point. But I do want to go play in snow. And that has never left me. Every winter, I hope we have just a little dusting because there's something so quiet and magical about that white blanket. Mm. And I think those songs kind of, and the, and the way that that movie is shot, it just kind of gets at that peacefulness and that feeling of comfort. Like we're yeah. snug inside in the warm, you know, yeah. and that links to my other favorite of big, big old fireplaces. But there's something about that for me that that will never disappear, that wanting for snow. And do you um, do you ever spend Christmas deliberately somewhere with snow these days or do you is it like OK for you to not have it? Oh, Jen, thank you for asking. You know what my biggest fantasy is? I don't want to fly very many places anymore. I traveled a lot when I was younger. But I want to go, I am Swedish, I want to go to Scandinavia for Christmas one year and go, and then maybe Norway, the fjords. I want to see snow in Scandinavia so badly. Wow. That sounds like a promising Christmas rom-com right there, actually. It does. It does. (laughs) I'll meet a man with an S-O-N name as well, and we will somehow skip off, yes. (laughs) Skip off happily into the snow, the snowy fjords. Yep. <laughs> and Sybil, like, I know you didn't grow up with snow, but it's like snow, something that like you like to see at Christmas. Have you put yourself in the way of it before on purpose? Um, no to any of those things, but I, I will say that, I mean, I think Christmas and snow go hand in hand. And I will say that this particular song is actually even more white Christmas to me. So mm. when people like, let's go watch white Christmas, I'll go snow, snow, <laughs> snow, snow, snow. Yeah. I won't say white. I won't sing white Christmas. Interesting. Aww. I like that. Well, it because, is more specifically associated with this movie. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I also feel it's the turning point of the film. It's like when everything's actually, everything else was like just a little bit exposition, like getting together. But this is where like now Christmas is starting. Yeah. Right. The snow is when that song is when Christmas is starting. They are going for snow. They're ready for the holidays. They're going to have a great time. Yeah, they're also becoming a team. You can almost feel it that they're all kind of banding together. Yeah. Love Mm. it. How did, what about the line, I'm going to wash my face, my hands, my hair in snow? Oh, <laughs> Jen, did you, did you know that snow washing is a thing? Wait, what? Yeah, snow, snow gets things so amazingly clean. And when she was talking about washing her hair, I was like, well, I've washed fabrics in snow and it's unbelievable. I was just thinking it must be like some kind of thing where like in the, the 40s and 50s, either things were cleaner or people didn't know they were dirty yet. That's like for me. I was just like, I don't know. I watch out for it. But I guess I don't know things. So and I will say that snow is something I like to see at Christmas, but I hate when we have to drive in snowy or oh. icy conditions to see people yes. like ugh, it just always makes me nervous. Maybe it shouldn't, yep. but it does. So. Yeah, I like it when it falls after you've arrived at the place and it's they've had time to clean it up before you leave. <laughs> and that, and that there's a roaring fire waiting for you, possibly? Optional. So that you can t- Optional. <laughs> oh, okay. So, uh-huh. so when we're talking about Christmas dreams, you've got Scandinavia and you have a roaring fire. Anything oh. else that would be like, if you're dreaming of a white Christmas, what would you be dreaming of for your Christmas? I think it's something like um, the environment of a ski lodge mm. after you've 
been shushing as uh, Bing <laughs> says, you know, you've been, you've been Christianaing or whatever you're doing on the slopes and you're tired in a good way and you sit around the fire in warm wool things and people serve you hot toddies and snacks Ooh. and maybe you have a good book. Holy cow. Okay, that's all I want. I swear, I swear. And I also want to be able to stand up and fit in the fireplace. Like wow. I want it to be that big. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I don't have anything. I don't have anything nearly that elaborate. I would say oh. probably like I would like to go to a Christmas market in Germany someday. I'll say that. That oh, sounds fun. Fantastic. And, I love those. Yeah, mm -hmm. but otherwise, I would just say like I, an ideal Christmas for me is just as long as I have the traditional Christmas movies, and I've got Lee, my husband, and I've got my little cat, and then oh. and anything else can happen, and I'm pretty much okay. Well, not anything else. Love. I don't want like the house to cave in or something. <laughs> okay, right. I'm getting weird now. <laughs> <laughs> that and, sounds lovely, though. Sybil, any any Christmas dream that you would put in? No, I don't think I have any fantasies about Christmas. Okay, fair enough. Fair play. So that means you can enjoy it without building it up and then being sad if it doesn't go your way. Well, I hated Christmas for most of my life. Mm. Uh, and oh. then I spent, I know, I just hated it. And then I spent um, a year right after college reclaiming things that I hated because of my family. What things did you reclaim? Like, do you remember? Yeah, no, absolutely. So like going to Disneyland, Christmas, my birthday, pretty much any event that like I had to do with my family. Oh, man. I love that you reclaimed it. I reclaimed it. Yeah, yeah. it was something my therapist had me do for a year. Just love reclaiming it. things that, you know, are you sure you don't like them or do you not like the memories you have of them? Oh, wow. So I went, um, my very first trip out of the United States, I did not love it. And so I went and I did the exact same tour again, but with myself, just myself. Mm. And I had a fantastic time. Oh. What did you do to reclaim Christmas? Like, um, well, I did think I created like new, I kind of created like new things around it. So I grew up with, you know, fake trees. And so I started getting a real tree and mm -hmm. I, it wasn't about like what presents were under it, but like the people mm -hmm. that I invited over to hang out with me mm -hmm. and have like a beautiful like meal or to come over and just enjoy some time around the holidays. So I did like board gaming nights. So we can all like hang out together, just like stuff like that, where it was less about just like the trappings of Christmas mm. and more about the feel of what Christmas should feel like. So I call it instead of like, you know, mercantile day, it's mm. more Christmas. Nice. I, I love that. Yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm glad we learned this. This is very yes, interesting. Yes, I am too. That was a good question. Thank, Thank you for sharing. Thank you for asking it, Jen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. All right. So if... I think I think we can be done with just thinking about it as a Christmas movie. Is everybody okay to move on again? Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're ready for Irving Berlin. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. So obviously this is a musical, and this is actually, I believe, yeah, this is the first musical we've covered on every rom com. And we're gonna do a musical series hopefully in 2023. So there will be more. But mm -hmm. yeah, when we do a musical, it's very important to talk about the person who actually made the music. And I was just fascinated to learn more about Irving Berlin, who provided the music and lyrics for this movie. He was born in Siberia in 1888 to a Jewish family, and his father was actually a cantor who's a synagogue official who leads the congregation in prayer or religious songs and chanting. So like Irving Berlin was already growing up around music. And then Berlin's family emigrated to the United States in 1893, and they were likely escaping pogroms, actually, because yeah. Irving Berlin said his first 
his only memory, one of his only memories of living in Europe was of lying on the side of the road and watching his house burn down. Mm. So pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he ended up like, and then he ended up like loving America. Like he has, there's a lot of stuff in his biography that talks about how grateful he was to be in the United States. So probably as a result of that experience. Um, yeah. Before the U S got really shitty about letting people immigrate from Europe, specifically Jewish yeah. people. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to go into that right now, I guess. But um, anyway, before Irving Berlin's songwriting success, he worked as a busker and a singing waiter. And then he had a breakout hit as a songwriter in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band. Then he was, over the years, an incredibly prolific songwriter. He published 812 songs. 451 of those became hits. And he wrote oh, thousands of other songs. So he was, he was, he was, a, he was a monster. He was a beast. Yeah, Come on yeah. he was getting it done. Mm-hmm. And um, some of his most well-known songs you have definitely heard of include Cheek to Cheek, Blue Skies, Easter Parade, putting on the Ritz. And then um, this really surprised me. He wrote God Bless America. That surprised me too. Yeah, because these days you think of it as this kind of jingoistic, maybe conservative nationalistic song. But actually, like at the time he first released it, he wrote it earlier, but he released it in 1938. And part of his motivation for releasing it was to inspire the U.S. to stand up for freedom against fascism in Europe. So at the time he released it, he was thinking of it as like an anti-fascist song. So Mm -hmm. that is so learning that it was like a Jewish immigrant, like who wanted to stand up against the Nazis who wrote this song. I like it a lot better. Yeah, for sure. It's like when I found out that Freddie Mercury was gay. And so I thought, I thought more kindly about we will rock you. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I don't know. You just associate certain songs with like, like dude sports bros or something. And you're like, Oh wait, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yes. (laughs) Yes. See, I have a new feeling. I'm not going to start singing God bless America all over the place, but like now when I hear it, I can be like, that's right. Irving Berlin, people still singing your Mm -hmm. song. And then of course, Berlin wrote the song white Christmas and he proposed the story idea for holiday end to the director of that movie, Mark Sandridge. So like all this huge success came out of his brain. There is, though, some speculation that this like very, you know, this Christmas song that everyone feels is so cozy, White Christmas, it has this like kind of melancholy tone. And there's some speculation that Berlin might have wrote it inspired by the death of his infant son who died on Christmas Day in 1928. So, oh, no. So, yeah, when you hear that little bit of a melancholy strain in the song, that's what some mm. people theorize it may come from. I don't know. They could be wrong, but there you are. Mm. Anyway, Irvin Berlin, man, there's way more I could say about him. Fascinating guy. Oh, Mr. Berlin, yeah. But he was such a darling person. Like, I mean, and his work ethic, I read about that. Like, he didn't wait for inspiration. It was perspiration. He sat down every day and wrote a song. Every day. And a lot of the facts I just got that I just told everybody about here on the podcast, you can get from the book White Christmas, The Story of an American Song by Jody Rosen. Mm. And I super recommend that book. I got it from the library. It was such an easy read and yet so informative. So Mm. yeah, check it out. Mm. And I also learned a lot about the song White Christmas from that book. (laughs) Mm. So White Christmas, the song was first publicly heard on the radio December 25th, 1941, but it didn't really become a hit until the winter of 1942. And according to the book I just cited, Quote, with White Christmas, Berlin created an anthem that spoke eloquently to its historical moment, offering a comforting Christmas time vision to a nation frightened and bewildered by the Second World War. And the book also said 
the song, quote, was embraced by homesick American GIs as a symbol of the country to which they longed to return and the values they were fighting to defend, end quote. So this was like the most popular song of World War II. Like they kept trying to make these like propaganda or patriotic songs to rile the troops. And instead they just wanted to buy and listen to White Christmas. Can't blame them though. Right. And now you can understand why it was in three different movies. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And clearly he made a ton of money off of this. Oh, I bet. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't actually, I don't remember what it said about that in the book, but prob- most likely, yeah. And uh, okay, you, oh, oh, Jen, can I just say this yeah. was something really funny. So when I was kind of just looking into some things before we started recording, somebody said, you know, it's kind of amazing for a song that just has eight lines. And I said to mm. myself, wait a minute, what? And then I sang it to myself and counted. And it's like, yeah, it only has eight lines. And in those eight lines, the mood that it creates is amazing. Yeah. And I think it is because of that melancholy, a bit of that, like, kind of like that, it's like sad, sad notes that are in Mm -hmm. it as well that make it that because Christmas for many people is this like bittersweet time. Yes, it is. It's like, have yourself a merry little Christmas. That's another one that can make you cry and feel (laughs) happy at the same time. Um, I believe this was the song that Irving Berlin thought like this was his best song that he'd ever wrote. Like he was like, this is the best song I've ever written. Yeah, that that is true. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, when you say about eight lines too, the song originally had this preamble and it was supposed to be more of like a funny song about people stuck in LA and they want to go back to the East coast, but wisely that was preamble was taken off of the song. Oh, fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, this was a hugely successful song by the time white Christmas, the movie came out, it had already, the Bing Crosby's version had already sold a hundred million copies and the song in all versions, like sung by other people too, had sold 400 million copies total. Wow. Um, this song was so popular that in 1947, Bing Crosby had to record a new master. You know, I, I don't know exactly oh. how audio recording works, but apparently that's a big deal. Like that doesn't they, happen. They, they're like, we copied it so much. We've worn out yeah. the master. You they, need yeah. another master. Yeah. That's unreal. And like, though it's hard to really measure these things because the pop charts were not like what they were until like the 50s or so, mm-hmm. it is still considered to be the biggest pop song of all time, the top selling song and the most frequently recorded song. And it's been recorded in languages, including Japanese, Swahili, and Yiddish. So like, yeah, it's gotten out there. White Christmas had also won the best song Oscar from the movie Holiday Inn at the 1943 Oscars. It was the only case of an Oscar winner presenting the award to himself. Uh, Irving Berlin said, I'm glad to present the award. I've known him for a long time. And then White Christmas. So it was funny you mentioned Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, too, because White Christmas's success as a song and then Holiday Inn as a movie inspired like this creative period where companies were trying to make make bank, you know, with their own mm-hmm. Christmas songs. Like Christmas songs weren't like a huge thing before White Christmas. They weren't like like everybody oh, needed to put yeah. one out. So in 1943, they came out with I'll Be Home for Christmas. In 1944, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And in 1945, Let It Snow. Like it's amazing that all those like staple Christmas songs all came out at the same time to me. Wow. Yeah. And then this same thing happened with Christmas movies. Um, we had this then the spate of Christmas movies. Meet Me in St. Louis is considered by some people to have a you know Christmas movie feel. Nineteen forty four. Oh, I think 100%. It's yeah. like one of the best uh, parts of that movie. Then we've got Christmas in Connecticut, 45. 
It's a Wonderful Life, 46, and then Miracle on 34th Street and The Bishop's Wife in 1947. So the mania for Christmas kind of started in this like post-war era after a holiday mm -hmm. and became so successful during the war. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to begin our spoilers section a little earlier than usual. So if you haven't seen White Christmas and you don't want the ending spoiled, please bow out now. And I believe White Christmas is actually on Netflix right now. So if you have Netflix, you can watch it there. Probably get it from your library too. So now you guys can, we can say anything we want about the movie in total. <laughs> okay. I don't really think you can spoil White Christmas. I, I mean, mean, you know. Not really. You know. <laughs> it's well, not okay. like a complicated film. No, but you know what part, there is a part for me that would be spoiled. I think there is something so dramatic about them pulling the barn doors open mm. at that exact point when they have built all that emotion up in the first part of the show and everyone is in the audience and they all go, oh, and the snow is falling in and he gets his snow for Christmas. Like there is something about that moment. Again, it's like the briefest moment. But for me, I I hang on throughout the whole movie for that one moment. Mm. I love it so much. Well, it is because it's an iconic section. It's, if you've seen uh -huh. anything, any clip from White Christmas ever, if anybody's ever used mm -hmm. it, that is the section. The doors open, the girls yeah. twirl, and bam. It's like <laughs> never seeing Psycho, but knowing that there's a shower scene and there's a knife. Yes. I know. I know. But like it's a it's a set piece, but it's so beautiful. It we is. waited the whole movie because all they couldn't stop talking about the lack of snow, right? Yeah. So it's like, we're all primed. Oh God, I love it. <laughs> it is. It's beautiful. And it absolutely is beautiful. And and you sit there for like, you know, the end, and the end seems to come very rapidly. You're like, oh. Yes, it does. Well, I guess we're over now. We built up to I this. Know. Okay. Yes. So this kind of relates then like to the to the two instances we hear of the song White Christmas in the movie. So you guys are talking about the end scene where we hear the song White Christmas with that fabulous Christmas tableau. And as you said, they open the barn door. It's snowing outside. They're in those fabulous red gowns you alluded to earlier. Yeah. Everything is super gaudy. They've got like children ballerinas. They've got a giant Christmas tree whole shebang but then there's this other instance of the song white christmas at the very beginning of the movie and i love uh -huh. i love that one better and here's one, one of the reasons i love that they fake you out by at first you think it's this like really bad backdrop of like a, you know a country you know road with the with the snow and everything on it and then they pull the camera back farther and you see that bing crosby is singing on a little stage that's been put up in the middle of a war zone in Europe during World War II. It's Christmas Eve, 1944. Like you see that on the, the screen. And that scene, especially now having read what I know about the song is so moving to me because mm -hmm. Bing Crosby would talked about like how he would go out during World War II and all the troops would ask him to sing this song when he was entertaining troops during World War II. Oh. And like they would just, he said they would like holler for it. And then when he sang it, they would start to cry and like oh, it was kind of my. sad. So when they when they're showing White Christmas in this opening scene, and you see these troops just looking so solemn and like quieting down, that's so that's so moving to me. And so I think that's actually even though like you love the gaudy Christmas feeling of the end and the the happy romantic endings, I love this quiet scene during World War II, right between you know a battle. What do you guys Jen, think? I think you you're so right, and also his choice to 
dolly back, like you're right, the reveal when you see actually what's happening. And then one of my favorite tiny moments, Danny Kay on the edge of the stage operating the music box that's mm. providing the music and it starts to wind down and he winds it back up. That little moment, it's winding down. Oh no. And then he winds it back up and the hope comes back. Oh my God. I mean, it isn't a long scene, but man, does that wrench your heart out? Yeah. Oh, Yes. Yeah. And so are you saying, Poppy, you prefer it or do you just like them both in their different no, ways? No, I, I like them both, but I love the point that you're making. Look at them as bookends. Mm. It's sort of like we're we're in this movie, we're past the war, but none of us are forgetting the war, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. the, the military guys coming back to be with each other is such an important part of that plot. And when they come back and they can't fit in the uniforms, it still <laughs> makes you understand that's the prosperity after, but at one time they wore those uniforms in battle. Yeah. And that first scene is the bookend. It's almost like Curtiz was like, yeah, this isn't all cotton candy. I mean, this is a pretty song, but remember, this is what we were thinking about originally when the song first came out. Yeah. And now look at where we are, satin gowns, and we're pulling back the doors to open to this tableau. But at one point, these guys were in helmets and uniforms in the snow, freezing cold, probably hungry. So yeah. and not with their family and not with, and their, not family. with their family. They were dreaming of white Christmas at home. Oh my but God. They would live to see that time. Oh my God. I'm going to cry right now. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. Dude, no, I do Jen. cry. I cry at the end of this movie when the general sees all the troops oh. have showed up to like, <gasps> like when Bob Wallace has called all the troops I do back too. to the end. I cry there when he looks at and sees them. But his acting of that is so real. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. like it just moves you deeply. Yes, it does. Like he oh looks my. out and he tears up and it, it's not just because you know, he he sees a time that he was somebody. He's you can see everything. You can see where he thought he was somebody. Mm -hmm. You can see that he's so grateful that these men are his men still, that yeah. they're alive and with him and that they're here yeah. to do this wonderful thing for him. Oh yeah. my God. Yes. <laughs> all yeah. of that. And then let's see, about White Christmas the song. So it sounds like I'm I'm guessing you guys probably prefer how it appears in this movie, but do either of you have an attachment to how it was sung in Holiday Inn, the original movie, where it's just like um Bing Crosby, and I can't remember the actress's name, but there's just an actress he's singing it to in this quiet, like cozy, you know, firelit room, you know, on the yeah. piano. What do you guys think about that? The only because I had to go back and watch it. I hadn't seen Holiday Inn in forever, because like it's who cares? I watched White Christmas. But mm. I, I did like that particular scene where he like uses the bells on the tree mm. oh. and you know, like there's other things that are used that make the song like extra special. Mm -hmm. And it's more of that when he sings it in that it's more of a discovery song, I think. Yeah. And is, doesn't that come, is that actress Mar Marjorie Maine? No, I can't remember her name, but she's beautiful. And doesn't that come at a part in the action where he's going to work They're They're just starting to work together. Yeah, yeah. Right? right. It's an important part of the plot. And also, hello, it's in a beautiful lodge with a big stone fireplace. That's where he said, that's where the piano is. It's like <laughs> you, it, that's all I need to see. And, and it's like, I'm sold. I think it was really beautiful because it was very low key. He was singing to her like, isn't this gorgeous, our relationship, this relationship that we're starting to be performers together? I yeah. loved that one, too. 
Yeah, I like the the intimacy of that scene for sure. And I'm trying to pull up here the name. One second. Let me see if I can pull it up. Like the funny thing is in Holiday Inn, like they skimped on the actresses because they had both Crosby and Astaire and they didn't know it was going to be successful or not. Yes. (laughs) So in White Christmas, they had a little more confidence and they got some higher profile um, actresses for that. Yeah. So yeah, Marjorie Reynolds. Marjorie Reynolds Reynolds. is the, the, the name of the woman who was playing there. Yep. Okay, so any more we want to say about White Christmas or should we move on to some other songs in the movie? I'm good. Let's move on. You're our captain. You go on. <laughs> so White Christmas is obviously the feature song of this movie and the big attractive attraction point. But there's a lot of other interesting key songs in the movie. One of them is the song Sisters, which we also hear mm-hmm. twice in the movie. First, we hear it with um, Judy and Betty, the sister act, singing their song with their beautiful like sky blue dresses and their fantastic yeah. fans. And they're little, not a very complicated dance number because Rosemary Clooney couldn't dance, but you know, mm-hmm. it's all right. Mm-hmm. And then we get this reprise with um, Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye <laughs> trying to give the girls time to run away. They dress up in some of the girls' accessories and use the fans and they lip sync it, which, wow. This is, for me, one of the best parts. There's yeah. a couple reasons. One, they the men have the little like trouser sock holder. Yes, the garters. the garters. It's amazing. It makes, it's, it's so effing funny. Um, oh. In a time where men didn't really show their legs much, anyways, let alone your trouser socks. I'm like, yes. And then you can tell that this was like a goof because literally, mm-hmm. like, Bing Crosby is having so much trouble just keeping it together. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Danny K is the most Danny K he could ever be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, apparently this wasn't even in the script. It just arose from them goofing around on set and like making fun of the song or not making fun of the song, but like doing Mm -hmm. the song, sending it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And do you guys like the the original with just the two women? Like, I didn't like it at first, but now it's like stuck in my head, like freaking all the time. It's driving me crazy. Let me just say to you all. So I was in musical theater in high school and a little bit in college. I started singing that song to myself when I was a teenager. I don't even think I had seen the movie yet. I don't know where it came from, but I used to just love that melody. Mm -hmm. And I would just sing it to myself. And I was like, where did that song? Well, how how did I start singing that song? Oh, yeah. That was a song that I just, I date to like pleasure around the holidays for like years and years. It was just weird why why that came to me. But I love to hear them sing it. I also just love the theme of sisters. Like here yeah. are two sisters who are talking, who are singing about like their relationship and how they'll always have each other's back. Well, except for. I, yeah, Lord help the sister who yeah. comes between me and, and my, my man. <laughs> I really do love the sisters song. Like I don't think White mm-hmm. Christmas would, the, the characters would be as rounded without the songs. One of the things that I talk about with musicals and my love of musical mm-hmm. is a music number is supposed to be there to move the plot along or show you something yeah. about your characters. Yes. And I found that almost all of the songs in this movie do it. Yeah, almost all. <laughs> almost all. <laughs> There's a few weird ones in here. Yeah. Which we'll talk about in the sense that yeah. if you watched this, many people saw this on you know commercialized television. The two mm-hmm. songs that are not really necessary to the plot are often just plain cut out. Okay, let me guess. Oh. Um, I'm going to guess choreography. Yes, 100%. Yeah. That whole number is not what. You're like, what? Okay. Yeah. And then is the minstrel number cut out too? or like The minstrel um, part is cut down. Okay. It's significantly cut down. Interesting. I think those are two good, strong choices myself. 
Mm. Yeah. So yeah. there's just a lot of like all the like all the dancing. They just like usually show just like they're like, hi, we have this. We use this part of the montage, that minstrel, minstrel number. Mm-hmm. And like, how are you feeling, Mr. Bones? Rattling. And then as, as soon as you go to the dance, it just moves. It just cuts out. No dancing. Oh. oh, I think the dance is actually the stronger part of that number, too. It oh, well. is, but it's not necessary to the plot of the story. Mm. Yeah. So I want to move on now to oh, count, yeah. count Your Blessings, which I think Aww. is a... It's a little hokey, but I thought it was a really beautiful it's song. Beautiful. And, and it's your moment of first rom- moment of romance between Betty and Bob. Like, oh, Judy also- pushes her to go get a midnight snack and she happens to find him there as well. Strangest we- midnight snack ever. I was way. just going to say, uh, so are we going to talk about the contents of that yeah. snack? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> the like- combos. Are like, like that? <laughs> like who's, and I'm so glad that nobody decided to eat that midnight snack. Yeah. The midnight snack apparently was what happened between them. It was the sugar, the yeah. sugar that they got. That's okay, right. Okay, this was the anecdote. Now, do you did you research this? I literally heard this on the radio that Irving Berlin went to the doctor with some nervous complaint, and the doctor said to him, "You know, I think what works really well." is to count your blessings in gratitude to relax yourself. And he thought, oh, and he went home and he was like, that might be interesting. He wrote the song. And then I guess, I don't know if he took it to his publisher or whoever and said, yeah, I don't think we're going to publish this. I just kind of wrote this based on something that I heard. That was the song. So this is a, this is a gratitude like it's a gratitude journal song. yeah it's a gratitude journal song it's like hey remember that you if you think about gratitude stuff that your brain chemistry will change and alter his doctor was very intense come what? on now but isn't that that's pretty cutting edge for the yeah, time, ahead of his time for sure mm-hmm. that's really cool so where, where, where did you hear this again like what okay, radio yeah, show I, I'm a choral music dork, so sometimes I listen to, do you know Classical 24? It's out of Minneapolis. It's like a national classical music station. No, It was one of their DJs who used to work in the film biz. Nice. And she does like a movie music show. Oh, cool. Excellent. That's Uh awesome. I like I like this added information about it too because now I feel like this is like a doctor recommended this song. So yeah, well, and it's where you know Bing and Rosemary could really like show their chops together. I mean, their harmonies are Mm -hmm. so gorgeous. Let's move on then to the war songs. Do you know this is really weird? Okay, because I'm not like a huge war movie fan, but like I do enjoy learning about World War II history. And like I said, the war angle of this movie was ended up being the most interesting to me. So I kind of really love the war songs in this movie. Yes. Um, the Old Man, the first song that the troops sing to the general. Um, oh, then there's my God. What Can You Do With a General that Bing Crosby sings on the television yes. show to get all the troops to come back and hang out with the general at his inn. And then this is the one I like the least, but there's the comic song, Gee, I Wish I Was Back in the Army. Where- John, you're stabbing me in the heart. <laughs> You're stabbing me right in the heart. Kid, you didn't like that wooden thing on rollers where they look, look like overweight butchers and <laughs> frumpy housewives and the harm, the harmonies. Oh, God, they're so good. I have three meals a day in which hey, you didn't you pay. Have to pay. <laughs> and then the fact that you could just pick them by the height and weight size. Right. Millions uh-huh. of guys yeah. longing in their eyes. In their eyes. <laughs> Well, clearly you guys like the song quite a bit. <laughs> yes, I do. I like the okay, song tell, a lot. 
tell us why you do not like this one. Well, I, as I'm, much. I'm not saying well because the other two to me like are part of the more serious and meaningful aspect of the mm-hmm. war. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the old man yeah. is just like there. It has a comic element because like they say, we'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go as long as he doesn't go opposite to the foe. So they're obviously like making a joke too. Like we don't want to be like right on the front lines, but we're going to follow this general. And there's a part Mm. where like, because we love him, we love him, especially when he keeps us on the ball. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just think it's so sweet. And that's the relationship between the troops and the general who's clearly like, you see him in the first scene, he's trying to give his troops a Christmas. This other general who's trying to replace him doesn't want his troops to have that opportunity you know, mm-hmm. like, like this, this general is a really humanistic kind of a guy. Comparatively. Yes. So like, I like that like, those songs that are like more about like the relationship between this general and his troops. Cause then what can you do with a general is talking about what happens after you've been like a general in a war and then you go back to civilian life. Like how disorienting yeah. would that be? Like, yeah, you were, like, is why it makes sense where people have this nostalgia for I wish I was back in the army because uh, these yeah. are the good old days when like I didn't have to have things to worry about. Stuff was taken care of for me. I was told yeah. what to do. I had all my stuff taken care of. And that's why you wish you were back in the army. Well, like, also, I think I, I feel like it just like for the, me, that one was like almost too light, though. Like, and it was almost kind of like denying the fact that like some of these people died. Like, I don't know. Like, it like it oh. pushed the lightness a little too far for me, I guess. Like when you then watch something like The Best Years of Our Lives and there's a main character, yeah. a real guy, too, who really did have hooks for his hand. Like in this yes. movie, you're like, there were some yeah. consequences to being in the army. Yeah. Yeah, know. you're you're right. It was almost like they were showmen playing to that um, Christmas Eve audience mm-hmm. yeah. because it was like trying to keep it fun and light. Yeah. Like, oh, remember those days, everybody? Like a big class reunion. Yeah. But I, I agree. You're actually making me think a little bit differently about it. Yeah, I can see your viewpoint completely. I think if you lived through it, you have to have that lightheartedness. You have to remember, like at some point in time, we're going to have, you know, pandemic, the musical, and it's going to be about like, there's going to be a song about remember yeah. how we had all the time to like break bake sourdough and garden. Yeah. Yeah. There's always like, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But just for me personally, like mm-hmm. I, I do like the more, the slightly more serious songs, like a little better, the ones that have a little more emotional impact. So well, yeah. 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 Also, I think they're more about the kind of bromance that's going on. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I also mm-hmm. it kind of rubbed me the wrong way when like I, the girls are like, the army is the place to find romance. Like literally everything yeah. in their part is just about like finding guys. And I'm sure like women in the army were doing some fucking serious shit too. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. Oh God, you're being a killjoy about this song. No, you are making really excellent <laughs> points. Yeah. I'm sorry. I meant to say you're making excellent points. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's part of my <laughs> fucking killjoy. I mean, you're doing an amazing job making me think deeply. Part of my job on this show is to be a killjoy. I think. I think I've done that before. Oh. Probably. Sorry. Well, <laughs> well done. You are you are bringing the serious themes into it, and that's good. <laughs> so yeah. Any more we want to say about these army songs? Well, I just want to throw in a little anecdote about that friend who had never seen this movie, and her comment was something like how did they make me cry and care about these people, but also feel patriotic? Yeah. Yeah. She's not a, she's not a rah-rah American flag kind of person. And she was floored by how emotional the movie was. And I thought that was such a great testament to the blend of the tones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then let's see, just in terms of the musical numbers in general, like what would you say is your like top two favorite songs from the movie? If you had to choose two or two numbers, 
I, I don't think I can do that. You have to. What if you had to? What if you could only ever hear two of them again for the rest of your entire life? Oh, my. Well, then I it's going to be snow mm-hmm. and white Christmas. All right. Very good. Because mm-hmm. they're Christmas. I think- I think I would vote for the bookends of the two. Now that Jen has me thinking about it, the bookends of the two versions of White Christmas, the beginning and then the end, and how different you feel um, after hearing each one of those. And I think I would choose the first White Christmas. And then I, it's not the best song in the movie, but I would choose the old man reprise where the, all the troops sing into it at the general as he comes into the room. Cause that's the part where I cry. So I'm going to choose yeah, the emotion. Yeah. I'm going to go emo on this mm-hmm. one. <laughs> and also let's just point out that somehow um, Bob taught all the men within 15 minutes, how <laughs> to fall in and do that whole thing off the stage, which was so impressive as they were singing. And I was like, every time I see it, I'm like, that would have never happened that way. They were way. in the military. This is just stuff that I don't know how to do. Okay. You know what? I I, I could buy that. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. like the one thing they know how to do, right? They were in the military. Like, they're like, yes, we fall in. We know how to march. Sweet. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> okay. And then how about if you had to take two numbers out of the movie, what would you take out? Oh, <laughs> we can all I, agree. The choreography just doesn't need to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, to be honest, even though I understand to establish, like, even though I was okay with, like, figuring out that there really was a show, I didn't need to see any of the numbers from that show. I (laughs) didn't enjoy any of them. Well, and one of the things I think that is missing, so I think it would have been interesting, choreography would have been more interesting if Mm -hmm. choreography spent time building the the Danny Kay and... Oh, like yeah, dear Ellen, Ellen. Yeah. like yeah. their relationship, because their relationship is kind of mm-hmm. just like, oh, I guess we're together because we're the last two people here, right? <laughs> right? I mean, okay. Whereas this could be a moment where they could have actually spent time and been like, you know, I you're really good at dancing, and I appreciate your like whatever. They could find a moment yeah. and like start yeah. to like each other a lot there. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I agree. And I think with that. it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of time in that number. So they could have spent a lot of time doing oh it. Oh my God. Actually, I'm keeping in choreography. Never mind. I'm going to take out the medley at the beginning where they show Wallace and Davis just singing the random songs like oh, the new skies. I'm taking out the montage and I'm taking out the minstrel number. I just don't need it. I don't need to think here about the me, happy minstrel me, days. Jen, leave my montage in there. You know why I like it especially? The blue skies song mm-hmm. and the costume. The costumes are great. <laughs> well, Those, well, it remains in your movie. It's just gone in my right. movie. How how are you gonna how are you gonna show that they are successful and they like became they yeah. bonded as brothers? Yeah, the newspaper headlines. I don't know. Whatever. Oh, whatever. That's within those numbers. I, I don't, I'm, yeah. It's my movie. That's why okay, I'm, okay. I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, because you gonna, can literally drop choreography because I've watched it many the, times. The reason nothing. The reason I've decided happened. to keep in choreography is because Vera Ellen's like tiny, tiny taps in that number are Gosh, just. Really I mean, she's insane. an incredible dancer. Come on, insane! Yeah. Like she just these like tiny micro tap movements with her, her foot that I'm just like. Whoa. Her legs aren't like insane, and her waist is tiny, and it, she is just boogieing. Yeah, doesn't she in the Mandy? Doesn't she basically do somersaults yes. down the stairs? And she's so throw her, and you're like, who who, who trusts those people to catch yeah. you? 
Yeah, that was like, I think I was mesmerized by her hips in that number. I was like, oh my God, they're like rubber bands, legs attached to her hips by rubber bands. You can understand one here. You can understand why the choreographer was like, hey, um, I'd like to get this chick. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For sure. She's yeah. going to, she is going to, and she's also going to be the, per, the person who like helps, you know, poor Danny Kay look like he knows what he's doing. Well, and also um, she looks great in turtlenecks mm. and those big ass ear clip on earrings <laughs> from the, like the, she looks great in those. So yeah. Okay. So oh, wait, I've chosen the movie, the songs out of mine. Sybil, you chose choreography and what's your other choice? Uh, oh, I took out. Um, okay. So if I take a choreography, I'm going to take out. Okay, I'll take out G.I. Wishes back in the army because, like, I don't need it to move the plot along. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I love it, but I don't need it to move the plot. And once again, musicals are, you need to move the plot along. Yes. And Poppy, what are you going to go with? I'm just sweeping the whole, all the rehearsals, the whole show. (laughs) I don't want, I want the whole show to go away. Bye. I want something else in its place and I don't know what, but I don't, I just do not enjoy that show, Wallace and Davis. I just don't. So you're taking out minstrel number and choreography. Is anything else in the show that we would take out? Wait, Mandy. Mandy. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of that montage. Oh, yeah. Minstrel number Mandy, they're all together. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Girl, yeah. you're yeah. gonna then- you're gonna you're gonna be like, there's no good costumes anymore. I'm not enjoying <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't have big like epic musical numbers anymore. Oh, the like, epic musical number now. The epic musical number that cuts to three people clapping in a tiny living room, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just, I'm just basically going to say to Irving Berlin, I'm sorry, go back to the drawing board. We need something else in this. You have worry purposed many songs. Dude, just go back in your catalog and just put a random, any other songs in your catalog in there, please. God, please take those out. Yeah. That's all I would ask. I wish, we could, I wish we had Irving here right now to be like, I'm sure ladies, he would be encouraged ladies. by my notes. <laughs> I'm sure you'd think this lady really knows what she's talking about. I'll have to follow her <laughs> advice. Yeah. I'm uh, sure that they were stuck in at the time because they were like, they were homages to the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Other yes. and you're like, oh, because once again, Bing Crosby is playing himself. This right. is like, a, this is like a whole movie about nostalgia, essentially. Yes. Yeah. The 10 year yeah. reunion of the troops. They're remembering their camaraderie in the war. Uh, they're remembering their old performing days and the old songs they used to sing. Yeah. hundred percent. Are we done like critiquing the soundtrack? Are there any other specific songs anybody wants to take out to talk more about? Well, let's not forget Rosemary Clooney at the what yes. is it, the Carousel Club. Oh, that yeah, is that... one of my favorite numbers because and it's oh. it, and it does everything it needs to do and her costume oh. and then oh, she goes out and she, once again a, a musical number that's doing its job. She says, yes. I don't want to do this song. Let's do something yes. else." Yeah, and the song oh, is God. "Love, Love You Didn't Do Right by Me." It's no, it's like her, that worry on her face backstage. No, please let's, he's out there. No, please let's not, you know, there was something just so good about that. I think the ladies made these guys sexier. Right? Yeah. yeah, I definitely did because both of them are not sexy. So okay, no, I think no, I think Pink Crosby has a certain something. Like I didn't see it at I first, and now he's grown on me. He's definitely grown on me. The <laughs> no. voice, the voice alone, dude. The voice His alone. His voice is dreamy, but like they have the whole number where he's taking off clothes, and I'm like, and they're t- they're hiding him, right? Because like you didn't show me men's legs and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm just right. like, please don't even show me you in a t-shirt. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You are so incredibly hey. old and unattractive. Oh, at least Danny no. K is fit. 
to Danny Kaye's like 43 and he's 51 though. So it's like, but, you know, yeah, a lot I don't of things care. happen. Danny Kaye was happen. fit when he was probably 51. Mm, he was know. super athletic. Well, anyway, yeah. I'm going to defend anyway. Bing here and I'm going to say that yeah, like, Bing. I, 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 that now that I'm 45, I can appreciate the 51 year old Bing Crosby. Like probably yeah. when I was 35, no, but, but now mm-hmm. that I'm 45, I'm like, all right. Yeah. He was hot when he was young in his 20s. Mm. I mean, the 1920s, he was gorgeous. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Sybil, yeah. are you making fun of us? I am not. I'm enjoying the fact that I, I, in my mind, I'm like, oh, they think that he's a dreamy. I'm like, I don't want either of them. I want to go home with the general. Oh, yeah. Oh, the general's hot, too, for sure. I want to go home with the general. The general is my kind of man. Yeah. I agree oh. with you there. This yeah. is, like, kind of off topic, but do you guys think the general and the housekeeper are, like, getting it on? Like, are they Absolutely together? Not. No? No. That's so sad. That's my headcanon now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, enjoy that. I don't think that at all, no. Very sad. Oh, too bad, because when she told him off in the bedroom when he wouldn't wear the uniform. Yeah. It took, uh, took, what did she say? It, it took, took 15,000 men no. to take my place. It was 15,000, okay. but yeah, it took 15,000 15, Okay. <laughs> I was like, ooh, she's a little dom energy here. I like that. <laughs> well, she's, yeah. definitely, she's definitely got that going on for sure. Yeah. For sure. Ooh, that was good. Well, I mm-hmm. I'd be, I'm, I'm shipping harder the, you know, the, the Danny Kay and, you know, his relationship. I, like, I think this is a, such a bromance. So okay. for me, yeah. I'm just like. They're just sitting around, um, hanging out, not even wanting chicks. There's also the best things happen while you're dancing, which is like the first Danny Kay and Vera Ellen interaction. And really mm-hmm. one of their only romantic interactions in the movie. Yes. They just start dancing when they first meet at the club. And it's mm-hmm. kind but of a you, showcase for Vera Ellen. And also, yeah. but if you pay attention to the actually the entire movie score, that is the song that plays under almost everything. Mm. Yes, mm. it does. Well, and it does when they decide to announce their fake engagement. Yeah. It does during I everything. It. It's like in the background when they're not singing sisters. Like pay attention. It is the under oh. it is the under song of that whole movie. What do you think about the number itself? Like for me, it's kind of boilerplate. It's kind of like the kind of thing you see in a musical and you're like, okay, this is the first dance between a couple of things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think whenever I'm like looking at a dance filmed like that and I'm thinking technical, technical stuff like, oh, wow. Um, Danny Kay is a, is a good dancer, pretty good dancer. And oh, she, that's interesting. They have her walking on that wall. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a good thing. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I couldn't lose myself in that number, but I almost couldn't. Yeah. So we are back. We've recorded this episode in two parts. And now we're going to be talking about White Christmas as a romantic comedy, since this is every rom-com, a rom-com podcast. And when you guys think of this movie, do you think of it first as a romantic comedy or or does that not come into your mind right away? It doesn't for me, no. Yeah, it doesn't for me either. It's just a Christmas movie for me. Once I think I said at the beginning last time was that the romance is just the secondary thing to like all the other stuff that's going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it is quite clearly a romance in a lot of other ways though. Um, mm-hmm. I was, I was going to talk about this at the, at the sort of the end of this section, but I kind of want to burst into this right now. Like for me, when I look at something like white Christmas and then I've been watching a lot of these like Hallmark style rom-coms lately, <laughs> this yeah. feels like almost like a template that they used for the Hallmark rom-coms. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you've got like these professional city dwelling people going back to a rural area to discover what's important in life, you know, (laughs) Um, this whole, I love that. Yeah. And, and 
you've also got your your classic failing business that needs to be rescued, which is another trope. Ooh, you know what I'm saying? True. Like how many of these Hallmark movies have you seen where like the whole story revolved around some like end that needed to be saved? I'm serious. Oh my God. Oh, okay. We, we have to talk about the chaste kiss at the end as being a hallmark of the Hallmark holiday movies too. Right. And when you think about White Christmas, man, that kiss at the end that that Bing gives Rosemary Clooney is pretty good, but that's about the best kiss we get, right? Throughout the whole thing or remind me. Well, there's one yeah. in Counting Your Blessings, like when they're singing that song. Oh, yeah. They have a pretty, that's that, a good one. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good kiss, I would say. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. But yeah, like well, I'm gonna I'm gonna break into that. Do you think that they have chemistry together? Yes. When you watch them kiss, you're like, oh my God, I'm like their brother and sister. No. <laughs> I don't feel like that. No, I think the way he looks at her when he's singing Count Your Blessings and he kind of reaches out to grab her hand at one point, that was like, that's pretty good. Like he looks into her eyes a lot yeah. in that number. And yeah, I feel it. Yeah. You I don't, Sybil? The kiss itself. Like I think no, I, I, I like it. Like have very much chemistry. Yep. Just like whatever. Aww. But you also don't find Bing Crosby hot at all, which we've already I established. Don't, I don't so. hot Yeah. That's true. <laughs> well, let's see. You can get it with me. <laughs> yeah. Let's save, <laughs> let's save this for a little bit later, though, before we dig too deep into it. I just wanted to oh, kind okay. of, like, the general tropiness, I feel, is there, though, for these, like, Hallmark, yeah, yeah. Hallmark style things. Yeah. Well, this is before Hallmark. So, like, yeah. Hallmark has stolen, as you said, the template. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a big part of, like, the Christmas rom com DNA. Like is in is to be yeah. found in White Christmas. Like they're all kind of mm -hmm. reaching for that that feeling at the end that you guys said that you have with the whole Christmas tableau and the and the snow yeah. in the background. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, and also sentimental slash patriotic. I mean, what a tone to achieve <laughs> in White Christmas. I bet Hallmark wishes that could be bottled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so let's talk about the actual setup of the romance in this movie. So. In this movie, we have Bob played by Bing Crosby as this like career oriented bachelor. And then Phil is always trying to get him together with like these random like showbiz women. Uh, do you guys love as much as I do the the, the ridiculous <laughs> girl that Phil introduces him to? Yes. <laughs> okay. I want to, this is what I think every time I hear someone say, pleased to meet you, I'm sure, in an old movie. I'm like, what did the I'm sure say what does that mean mutual i'm sure mutual i'm sure yeah. and, the, and, you the, hear and the funny part is that somebody's like like it isn't the correct answer somebody's like how do you do and then she's like mutual i'm sure <laughs> that's what i mean they always no, the correct answer for somebody who's like i'll have what he's having like however oh. you're feeling, that's how I feel. Like I have no, I have literally no personality. I am just oh. a blur to you. Okay, that's what that means when yeah. they end. Oh, but, I, but it's grammatically incorrect because like he, yeah. nobody has said like like it, it, to be mutual. She'd also be just saying how do you do or something like you know what I mean. It's like she somebody taught her like like an etiquette class and she like fell asleep and just oh, like like. She's like Jean Hagen in Singing in the Rain. Exactly. You know, it's like yeah. there's just something about that chick in that one line. She just secured fame for herself. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Lee, my husband actually asked, is that the girl from Singing in the Rain? I'm like, no, honey. No. It's not <laughs> oh, like that's that. hilarious. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I can't stand him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
it's like Gene Hagen. It's it's not quite as good as Gene Hagen, but it comes close. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's hilarious. Well, I, I love the mutual. I'm sure, lady. She lives in my heart. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's and then fantastic. she and she shows up again later in the movie. That's what's even better. She shows up at their Christmas party later. <laughs> oh, that's right. Well, they reuse pretty much everybody who's there, which I think is really interesting because it means it makes their life like actually real. Mm, so like they yeah. have people move in their circles, and if you pay attention, if you watch it enough, you'll see that these people continue to move in their circles, which is what would happen in real life. Yeah. Yes, it is for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's not just a bunch of randos hanging out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so back to the mutual, I'm sure, lady, like Bob tells Phil that he doesn't want to get together with just any girl. And like, he doesn't think that these showbiz ladies are going to want to settle down. They're young and they're ambitious, the kind of women they meet. And like, I always think that's interesting because like, what is implied that's going to happen at the end of this movie? Like, is he expecting that Betty is going to settle down and they're going to get married and have kids? Or is he going to be okay with her having a career? Did you guys ever think mm. about that? I never thought about that. No, I didn't because that it's made such a point of when they go to the club to see the women first of all, right? It's about, oh, showbiz women want to have a family too. Remember, that's like mm-hmm. the yeah. whole yeah. thing behind that convo um, when he's talking to Bob about that. So, yeah, I guess I felt like maybe Bob kind of sized her up and figured out that they could figure that out together. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I hope she also, still sings. Well, also, she's incredibly talented, and here they are doing a show together. So clearly, they could continue mm, to work together. Yes. Yes. And also, they don't suffer fools, Wallace and Davis. So the idea is these women rate highly enough in talent that they would take them on into their show. A hundred percent. So you guys think that there could be a happy ending for these romances then? I I, I, I think so. I couldn't I hear Sybil. I would say that, yes, I don't see why they couldn't just because, you know, here they are, they're, you know, they're, they, they live in the same sphere. They've been through already some trials and tribulations and, you know, I think both of them, once again, I think it's really interesting because I I don't, I think the second sister, the younger sister, she's just like, I barely know this guy, but I guess he's what I'm taking. (laughs) I guess we're supposed to assume that Danny Kay and um, Vera Ellen are like doing stuff off screen that we don't know about. I, that's the feeling I get. You know what I mean? Because it's clear that they've had conversations that we're not privy to because they signal to each other through the windows and stuff. So I just, yes. in my mind, I'm just like, all right, they're hanging out during the day. And but I just, in my mind, it. they're doing it. They're so yeah. doing it. Uh-huh. Me too. I think they're just quirky enough to appreciate that in each other. And yeah, I feel like if Vera had any choice in the matter, that's absolutely what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. There's a scene I wanted to clip for the movie, but I couldn't find clips of it. So I wanted to do a little bit of every rom-com theater of just the part where Phil is trying to get Bob to meet women. And um, I practiced Phil pretty well. If somebody else can can do Bob. I can do Bob. All right. Excellent. And so basically Bob's asking Phil why he's, he's bothering him. And I'll start with Phil's part. Because you're a miserable, lonely, unhappy man. Oh, you're wacky. I'm a very happy man. Well, then you're happy for the wrong reasons. And that's the same as being lonely and miserable, except it's worse. You know something? You're off your nut about a mile and a half. I've got everything in life I want. Oh, sure. I'm off my nut a mile and a half. At least. You've got everything you want except the most important thing. What's that? A girl. Well, I'll get around to that one of these days. My dear partner, when what's left of you gets around to what's left to be gotten, what's left to be gotten won't be worth getting whatever it is you've got left. 
when I figure out what that means, I'll come up with a crushing reply. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Which, by the way, what I think this is fun. And the other thing that's interesting about this is that men have all the time in the world, get women tick, tick, tick. No kidding. Mm-hmm. And also they're not presented as, I mean, it's never spoken about their ages, no. but it's like, clearly they've been through a lot and it's no problem kind of looking around at the young, the young chicks and taking their pick, whatever. I mean, yeah. Well, oh I mean, God, it's so 50s. Bob's age is alluded to a little bit here because he says when what's left of you gets around, like he's like, he is acknowledging that Bing's getting a little older there. Bob's getting a little older. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, your semen ain't going to work. Sorry, dude. I don't know yeah. if that's the part he's talking about. <laughs> that's the parts that he's discussing. I mean, oh. I think that's really implied right there. Yes. I don't know, man. He's like, there isn't Viagra yet. So I don't know what to tell you, sir. I just think he's like, hey, man, you're looking a little like worse for wear than mm-hmm. you did before. So maybe, yeah. maybe you should get going here. <laughs> So after, soon after this conversation, I think it's after this conversation is when they go in to see the sister act with Betty and Judy. And I like, you kind of find out that they're attracted to different women because they keep saying a different pair of eye, a different color eye is what they're attracted yeah, to. Blue, or is the blue, hot one? Brown, blue. Oh, and blue. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I like that it's not a love triangle because Holiday Inn's a love triangle. I like this better where each, yeah. there's some, somebody for each person. And obviously, Sybil, you're not feeling the heat between any of these people. No, Did you like the, God, the first no. meeting in any way? or Believe it or not, the, the heat that I feel is actually between um, Danny K and Vera because I feel that they actually do have some like fun. They're both funny. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I think they actually put, they actually like, they're, they're like little looks at each other. There's so many more like little looks at each other. Mm-hmm. Like all of their stuff is done quietly without much dialogue yeah mm-hmm. and so if i have feelings for anyone if i'm like oh there's they're gonna get together it would be them which is why i think i pine so heavily for like their rom-com i want to watch them okay mm-hmm. okay the scene that really makes it hard for me to ship these two is when like um judy says that they're gonna like pretend to be engaged because she thinks that's why betty isn't committing to bob because she wants to watch out for you know her younger sister she, she says we're gonna pretend to be engaged and then as soon as she starts kind of like making that approach to phil he gets nervous around her like she's <gasps> yeah but you all here's my moment to talk about her hand on his thigh and watching her hand move up as he scooches back. And I think this character that Danny Kaye plays is like a stock trope of the reluctant man who is finally felled by the enormous attractiveness of the woman, in this case, Vera Ellen. Because by the, by, the, by the time we get to the rap party and they are making their fake engagement announcement and they start dancing he pulls her close and you can feel the chemistry between them at least i feel it i think they're maybe secretly kinky and a little wild in bed with each other like i just feel like they're so fun and so relaxed and they get each other's vibe so well that they would just be the most fun couple in some sort of um goofy comedy noir i would love to see it Huh. See, I, I, yeah, they just don't do much for me. I think it's like whenever I see Vera Ellen trying to hit on him and he's like not appreciating it, I'm just like, I just want Gene Kelly to come back from on the town and like, like whisk her away. 
I don't know if I'm the only one, but I think Vera Ellen with different dancers, like I don't feel her as a pretty sexy person until <laughs> she gets with Danny Kaye as a foil. There's something about that combo for me that brings out something in her, like a little bit of aggressive. I don't want to call it aggressive because I think that's a pejorative, but mm. it's like a little more assertiveness in her yeah. sexiness and confidence, something like that. Yeah. Maybe it's because yeah. she's like, I know that I'm an incredible dancer and you're just, and I'm like, I'm just carrying you, sir. <laughs> yeah, and I look great in turtlenecks and <laughs> I'm in a poofy poodle skirt that almost stands up uh, on its own in this scene on the window seat. And I'm just going to keep scooching you right against the wall, buddy, until you capitulate. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Maybe I just, maybe it's, maybe it's personal stuff. Maybe it's because I've had to be so assertive in my own love life that I, and when I watch a movie, I like some, like a guy who's not going to like, like wince away. I want a guy who's going to take charge and be like, I want you. Like, so that's, it's probably my own personal stuff. We all bring our personal stuff to the movie. I think that's valid though. That's a good feeling. And yeah, for sure. You don't want to feel like you're inflicting yourself on someone. Yeah, but yeah, it's interesting to hear these different takes on their their little romance mm-hmm. story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to say about Judy and Phil? All I want to say is watch her hand on his thigh. I'm telling you. I'm telling you it's the hottest damn thing in the whole movie. That's all I want to say to people. Nice. <laughs> I will I will be more observant about that next time. <laughs> gets pretty close. Let me just say, gets close. Yes. So now we go on to Betty and Bob. And what I love about this story is that like Judy tells Phil that Betty is a slow mover. And yeah. like yet like within like maybe a week of knowing each other, she's <laughs> yeah, like saying yeah. that he's like a knight on a white horse to her and stuff like yes. this. Yes. Mm. I mean, I'm not a slow mover, but like it didn't really strike me as very slow even compared to me. So I don't know. I almost felt like she was saying, too, she's a little prickly, right, hmm. Betty? Like, when you think of that first scene, when she first meets the famous Bob Wallace, mm-hmm. right? It's Bob Wallace. Um, she, when she meets him, she doesn't hesitate to contradict him mm-hmm. and stand up to him. She's just, to me, she was always very prickly until the liverwurst and buttermilk. You were saying that Betty's a little prickly, but I also like that she's portrayed as having like a system of ethics, like which Mm -hmm. kind of bites her in the butt a little bit later in the movie because of the overheard stuff by the housekeeper. But like she right away says that like our brother didn't really invite you to see us. Uh, We Mm -hmm. Judy did. Judy thought it would be good and help our careers like Mm -hmm. and, and Bob doesn't really care. Like he doesn't mind that Judy has an angle, but Betty particularly is someone who does not have an angle, which is important. She's really just trying to be like a serious, honest person. Mm-hmm. True, true. Do you find that this is the most contrived big, big mus- misunderstanding like ever? Like, uh, I mean, I mean, it's so, yeah. it's so contrived. It's so because she is very straightforward. You're hundred percent right. She would have gone to him and be like, "Hey, I heard this. I heard that you were doing this and this. I don't Ex- like that." Exactly. Instead, she says, "I'm just being passive aggressive." Suddenly, bam! I'm out. Right, right. Well, she's like, she's pouting. And that didn't seem to be in her character earlier on in the film. True. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could say she was so maybe if she was so into him already that she felt so romantically disappointed that Mm. she just couldn't deal with it. I don't know. And she feels like Phil has confirmed, you know, what, what is going on, even though he hasn't really. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I can see it. I can see it. 
And and also when she's at the carousel club after she's left the show and she finds out he's in the audience, her discomfort at the song she's going to sing with him in the audience tells you that it's really romantic disappointment. She cares a lot about his opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And before we go, go off the topic of them, I did want to play their little song number two. So this is their, this is their big romantic number in the movie. Just, it's not the whole song, but it's part of the counting your blessings song. So here we go. If you're worried and you can't sleep, just count your blessings instead of sheep. You'll fall asleep Counting your blessings Do you mind if I say something just for the record? Of course not. I think what you're doing for the general is one of the most decent, unselfish things I've ever heard of. No angle? No angle. I won't apologize for the way I sounded in Florida. I guess I've always been kind of a silly schoolgirl. You know the bit, the lady fair and the knight on the white horse. Let me tell you something. It's kind of dangerous putting those knights up on white horses. Likely to slip off, you know. I think mine's there to stay. That's sure good to know. Makes a fellow feel a little shaky to go up there all alone on one of those bleached chargers. Are you worried? Kind of. If you Sleep. Just count your blessings instead of sheep, and you'll fall asleep counting your blessings. And this is where that big kiss happens. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Big kiss, and they they do they smooch. It's a lot of smooching. There's a lot of lips mushing together. Yes. See, now I found the scene romantic, Sybil. So I don't know. Like, I found their mm-hmm. chemistry good here. The singing together is so nice. They blend mm-hmm. together nicely. I mean, I like their singing together is amazing. Well, I like it. I like how he's so honest with her about his worries. Like, you can tell, obviously, he's attracted to her, but he's like, babe, don't get too many grand ideas about this right we just met i cannot be your white knight i love her admitting it's a bit of a schoolgirl thing it's kind of just really touching amongst two adults you know yeah it's also interesting that they don't say hey i like you this is how they say hey i like you in this like kind of like uh sideways manner (laughs) yeah so we've got this like white horse thing and this pedestal thing. I thought I thought it was kind of interesting. I but it but it's funny. Like what's more alarming than the pedestal though is like she's supposed to be a slow mover and she's like I think he's here to stay. Like and she just met this guy. I'm like, "Whoa." Okay. Yeah. Anyway, their definition of slow moving is different than mine. Mm. Musical time is like dog yeah. years. I guess yeah. so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they already sung like two songs together. They're in it to win it. Well, and don't forget, people. it wasn't that long after wartime when people literally met and married mm-hmm. within like three weeks of dating. So it's like maybe in that time it was like, oh, yeah, love at first sight, of course. Yeah, that's, you know? that's a good point. Okay. Yeah, I can I can go with that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. 
the ro- any more about the women and men romances in this, or should we move on to the bromance aspect? No, we're going to move. I want to talk about bromance. This okay. Is tell, my land. Yeah. yeah. So I find that white Christmas for me is more of a bromance and it's, it's a bromance between our two main leads because it's a buddies movie, right? They're like best friends. They've like done everything together. They are partners in every way, but maybe physically. Right. And you also have this like, kind of like, like they're both together and they're both into the general. Like he's like this person they've, they've looked up to and they're just kind of bring him back into the fold. But now he's like, not just the general, he's becoming their friend. So mm. I find that there's also like this relationship that's happening between, you know, Bob and the general, especially. Mm. Mm, yeah. And also symbol, the text to back up your theory is to me at the end of the movie, we're in the spoiler section, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so at the end of the movie, when they're doing the big white Christmas um, number again, and they both move to the back of the Christmas tree, and Bob is kissing Betty, they have made up, and uh, Phil set, taps him on the shoulder and says, welcome to the family. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you remember? Yep. And it's almost like, what's the family? The family, like that Phil was trying to create between them, maybe like that they're both settled with a romantic partner and they can go forward in their friendship, knowing that they're both settled down, like whatever that means. It was a very distinct line, you know, at that point. Well, yeah. And and settled settled down with sisters from the same family. So they will be literally each other's family. So I want to be like, for me there, I would never got this vibe where like, clearly they're having like, like a gay bromance. It was really just like this bromance where they are best friends in, there were war buddies. They were they were they are together in ways that no one can really experience. Like I don't even know if their wives will ever like replace mm-hmm. their each other, right? Yeah. yeah. So we have women movies like this all the time. We have like chick movies where they, you know, the the sisters, the friends, whatever they get married, but they're still, you know, their 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 person is still that other half is actually their soulmate is actually that friend. Mm-hmm. I find yeah. that this is that way, but for our two gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's an interesting theory. Yeah. I really love this and I love how you're extending it out to the general too, because you're right. Bob really looks up to him like a father figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good one. But if, mm-hmm. if you look, he kind of transitions after they have that conversation on the bench where he like, he's, he, he begins to understand that here is a man who he has put up on this essentially white horse, this pedestal. Mm. And he, he is just a human. He's a guy who has a failing business. He's a man who, who wants those glory days and is being denied them and doesn't know what to do with his life essentially. And he becomes, instead of this like hero, he becomes this, this person, a real person to him in that moment. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's incredibly well-written in my opinion. It's very well-written. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now that we're talking about bromance, we may as well, we've already talked about the war quite a bit, but I did want to like specifically highlight White Christmas as a World War II movie, if we're ready to move on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, just like we've talked about it previously in this, but like I've I've seen this cited numerous places, how a White Christmas functions as a World War II movie. In fact, there's an article on the website of the National World War II Museum that discusses the movie. It says, the movie no doubt brought back memories of Christmases aboard ships or in foxholes for veterans and of quiet Christmases on the home front waiting for a service member's return. So like they're citing like kind of the beginning of the movie where we see White Christmas sung. On that same website, there was another story about somebody who 
the last memory they have of the service member they lost to the war was buying the sheet music for white Christmas together and performing it in church. And like, I guess it just was so meaningful to so many people, that song and the movie. Well, I think the movie is part of the healing of American society Mm. for sure. Like even it was almost 10 years later but obviously all these memories of people having gone to war, people having come back and maybe been scarred by it, you know, the longing for that sort of so-called innocent um, time between the wars, it was sort of like, wow, we can raise a glass of champagne and say, Merry Christmas. We're in this idyllic setting with friends and relatives yeah. and we can make fun. You know, <laughs> one of my favorite songs, as we discussed earlier, you know, we can kind of make fun of our time there. We can, you know, we've got enough distance on this, but we're still coming quite a long way. You know, it's, we're not quite there, but we're, we're aiming that way. And maybe the, the general, his little arc and his little journey in the film is about how do you recover from yeah. all of that, whether or not you had a super positive experience leading troops of men or, you know, whatever, you know, survivor's guilt, whatever it is you're dealing with, raise a glass of champagne, Merry Christmas, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Like, that's why I love that final scene. It's just yeah. sort of like, here's some hope. You know, the song we love, it brings us together and it always was about hope. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to play a different song. Um, I'm going to play another clip very quickly here, but I'm going to play a different song that they bring when they surprise the general and a little speech that he gives. So if you'll if you'll all indulge me, we're not actually going to play White Christmas on this episode. Sorry, everybody. But you probably know the song already. <laughs> we'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go. are ready for inspection, sir. I am not satisfied with the conduct of this division. Some of you men are under the impression having been at Anzio entitles you not to wear neckties. Well, you're wrong. Neckties will be worn in this area. And look at the rest of your appearance. You're a disgrace to the outfit. You're soft. You're sloppy. You're unruly. You're undisciplined. And I never saw anything look so wonderful in my whole life. Thank you all. Mm. I know. Love that scene. Yeah. Fred Jaeger just gives such a fantastic performance. Like, I want to see his other movies. He really does. He does so much with his eyes. Uh Uh-huh. And you know what struck me too listening to this this time is that 
the theme of duty and responsibility and affection and gratitude towards enlisted men and women and what happened during that war, that's kind of romantic too. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like as the general, he's a good looking man. He's a strong man, you know, and he's not really lessened much by his retirement as we see through Bob and Phil's reaction to him, even seeing him in a sweater and shirt, they are still like, Whoa, this is our general. And there, there's something so like beautiful about that beyond the patriotism. There's something like a gorgeous romantic, like platonic feeling for me about seeing those scenes with him. Yeah. And there's, and there's both serious instances of that, like showing that wartime bond. And then there's like, they keep playing for comedy Phil's like uh, arm injury. (laughs) Yes. Because like, it's obviously not quite as serious as he makes it out to be, even (laughs) when he's in the field hospital. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Taking his arm out of the sling is like the best comedic thing ever. It really is. It really is. When he like, he like shakes his hand and he's like, bye. And you're like, oh my God. It's so funny. And just the little double take by Bing, you know, just that little slight subtle. Yeah, love yeah. it. Before we, we're going to do a s- small comparison to the movie Holiday Inn. But before that, do you have any more random things you want to say about White Christmas or things you want to say about it in general? I think I don't know if we touched on. We talked about the costumes earlier on, didn't we? A little bit. Sure, but you can talk we did, more. We didn't like more. hardcore talk about costumes. Yeah, let's hardcore just talk for a minute. I mean, <laughs> I, I love the colors, the I love the set design. I love the colors of the costumes. I even love the colors, even when men are in the drab military colors, there's something really beautiful and calming and soothing of the blue grays and greens. But the women's costumes, I mean, I keep thinking about the skirt. It, it was very popular style in the 50s, but the skirt that Vera Allen wears on the window seat scene with um, Phil, the poodle skirt, it's like made of this boiled wool or something. It's so stiff, but it's just adorable with her tiny cinched in waist. And it, it was just very feminine and whimsical. And I felt like the costumes all throughout were just like so lovely. Well, and it's, it's good that you mentioned like the material. Cause I actually find the textures of mm. all, there was so much texture on all the costumes. Yeah. We have like we have like a velvet dress. We have satin gloves. We have you know a two. We have two lay two uh, two two. You know we have a we have satin bustiers. Like everything is just so decadent, and you just feel like you can be there and touching it. Mm. Oh, and the feathers too, and the number yes. of sisters, right? Yes, it's all the very tactile. Oh yes, very much. And then when Vera Ellen is dancing with with Phil in that in that club scene, how that pinkish kind of corally colored dress with a I think it has like a lace overlay, and how it twirls around her legs as she's spinning. I mean, it's like it's like um, a Sarah and Rogers costumes. You know, it just it feels like really beautiful and feminine, and a nice counterpoint to how. I don't know, modern they were in, in forging this career with each other. Yeah. I'm glad you guys care this much about the costumes. Cause <laughs> I could talk about costumes forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's see. I had my random note is I love the dialogue because it's so out of date now in the day of Bernie Sanders, but there's a dialogue between Bob and Phil where Bob's like, what do you think would be a novelty up here in Vermont? Phil says, who knows? Oh, okay. Maybe we could dig up a Democrat. And Bob said, they'd stone him. <laughs> 
<laughs> and like this really line. marks the change the change yeah. in Vermont politics since the since yes. the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, yeah. And uh, let's see, the other thing I wanted to note was there's a scene where Mary Wicks, the housekeeper, the actress who plays the housekeeper, she's so grateful to the guys for helping the general that she like kisses them on the mouth, (laughs) Phil first and then Bob. And like, it's kind of played for kind of a joke, like, oh, this older lady's kissing us. But I found out she's actually seven years younger than Bing Bing Crosby is. Now, to be fair, they have Bing Crosby's character, like go back and almost kiss her again. So I like that. That was good. I did too. I thought that was a tiny thing but it was like we're giggling at her performance but you know what she's still a woman and he was like wow that's some passion give me a little more of that yeah yeah so i'm glad that she wasn't just played for like total laughs there you know what i mean i love that too yeah yeah i also like there's this throwaway line where bing crosby refers to danny k as a weirds mobile And like, and I read somewhere that like a lot of Bing Crosby's like dialogue was improvised and that might've yeah. been part of that. So weird. Yeah, there's, there's certain things he says that you can tell it's just part of his own lingo mm-hmm. that he must've embellished the script with it. I think there was another instance of something similar to that, that I thought, wow, that really stood out as like a yeah. Bing Crosby line. Yeah. It's nice. Any, so anything else about the movie in general, before we move on to holiday Inn and then our double features? Just mm. that I love it. I've seen it probably 30, 40 times and I never get sick of it. 100% true. Well, I think I've seen it about four times now. So I have a lot of catching up to do. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've seen Holiday Inn more times though, because I definitely watched it a lot in my childhood. And yeah, they're very different movies. Um, despite having Bing Crosby and Irving Berlin, like, and having... And the same inn is used in both. So the same inn set is actually used in both movies, interestingly enough, which you don't necessarily notice because, like, of course, one is in black and white and one is in Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stories themselves are just so different. Like, you've got a love triangle in the first one with Crosby and Astaire after the same women. And then here you have the separate love stories, which I prefer. Crosby's character is totally different. He goes from being a, a relaxed guy who wants to retire to an inn in Holiday Inn to being this workaholic in White Christmas who has to be kind of made to go to the inn. So there's, yeah, there's some differences there. And then of course we've mentioned the women characters are much stronger in White Christmas as opposed to the women who were put into Holiday Inn. They weren't really the feature. One other like really important difference though between Holiday Inn and um, White Christmas is that we have Fred Astaire in Holiday Inn and his dance numbers are like, do you guys, have you guys remember his dance numbers from that movie? I mean, he's Fred Astaire too. They're just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He does this like drunken dance, like where he's supposed to be like totally drunk and he's dancing with the main actress. And then he does this like uh, firework dance later. Oh yeah, that's a good one. So, I mean, if you're going to watch Holiday Inn, that's like one of the big highlights of that. Has, and, has anybody seen that colorized? Because I love it colorized. Oh, no, I don't do that. Oh. I know. I know people don't, but I, I'm not a purist that way. Like, I, I love them colorized because, oh. you know, I just think to myself, this is how I'm sure they actually envisioned it. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, we had to do it in black and white, but like, this is how you, they, you know, a person would have envisioned it if they had all the opportunity to do color. I guess. I just don't like the way it looks, though. I don't like the way it ends up looking when they colorize things. Because, like, when it was actually filmed, they're they're filming it for, like, the black and white, the contrast, all that type of thing. So it, like, it has its own beauty to me. I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did they make everything very red and green, though? Uh, The fireworks one is actually, they have, like, this whole, like, 
uh, it's like an orange and a red and like there's a bunch of like gold stuff. Like it's, okay, it's, a, very, it's okay. a very beautiful number. That's what made me think of it. I was going to say, I think maybe we should warn people that there is blackface in that movie, oh, though. Yeah, I was about to get ready. Okay, I was about good. to get around yeah. to that, actually. Yeah. And that's like a... So, so first of all, the theme of Holiday Inn is totally... The story is totally different. Like, it's like themed around an inn that has like numbers for different holidays. And one of them is Lincoln's birthday. And so for Lincoln's birthday, and it's like kind of in the plot, there's this like reason that they're doing blackface so that Fred Astaire won't recognize his singing oh, partner because yes, he's in love with her and so she'll be in blackface so he won't be able to tell that it's the same girl that's he danced before right. and, and it's it's really it's pretty offensive like it like yeah. blackface is offensive to begin with but yeah, like it's yeah. pretty extremely offensive even saying that you know what i'm yeah. saying it's not yeah. so much that they caricature the voices too much but it's just mm-hmm. the way she comes out and she's got these braids and everything sticking in different mm. directions and it's like she specifically says like i thought it was going to be so beautiful tonight and all this crap oh yes that's right yeah and it's just it's really bad and like mm. we yeah we did watch it the other day and like if you take that number out of the movie you're mm-hmm. fine okay but like yeah. unfortunately they made it intrinsic to their plot as well so right. that's fantastic <laughs> hmm but like one thing I did notice, though, when you then look at White Christmas is like Holiday Inn has at least one black speaking character played by Louise Beavers, mm-hmm. who plays like kind of the housekeeper. And granted, that's not like a great role and it has its own stereotypes that come with it. But then mm-hmm. you get to White Christmas and they're like, well, we're just going to kind of forget about black actors altogether. Yeah. There's just like one nameless train attendant, like literally doesn't say anything, just mm-hmm. hands them some food. So it's like they weren't quite ready to um, deal with race in a good way there either. It just was kind of disappeared. Yeah. From the table. Plus the minstrel number in White Christmas, too. It's like, oh, you, you know, my feeling about that whole rehearsal show. <laughs> <laughs> Cut the whole thing out. <laughs> yeah. So, like, there's definitely, like, White Christmas is, like, you know, doesn't show, like, a blackface number, but it's definitely not progressive around issues of race yeah. either. No, so. that's right. Yeah. No, it was it was that time. And listen, that's not what they were doing. They were not thinking about diversity in mm-hmm. any way. Yeah. We, yeah. we just barely started about talking about oh, yeah. doing diversity, and we're far, far past 1950. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very true as well. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely, like, a cautionary thing to tell people about the movie. Yeah. But... Yeah, I think there are positive things about Holiday and all the same, especially like Bing Crosby's original singing of White Christmas and Fred Astaire's dancing in particular. Oh, and plus, let's mention there's also a horse-drawn sleigh <laughs> in Holiday Inn as well. I yep. mean, honestly, I can't get enough of a horse-drawn sleigh. So there you go. <laughs> I knew that that was coming up. I was like, oh, wait, there's a horse And the fireplace. And, and there's a giant fireplace. fireplace. the same one because they yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah, I guess this brings us to our double feature recommendations. And actually, my first double feature recommendation is to watch Holiday Inn from 1942 and White Christmas back to back. If you if you don't if you're able to watch that movie with the blackface, if you're not, I totally understand. But like, it's it's an interesting sort of exercise in film history, if nothing else, to see how some of the same creators took like uh, some parts of the same story and morphed them into two different, very different movies within like a, about a decade of each other. And yeah, Lee was just like, when we were watching together, Lee was just pointing out like, that was just like such a short time away and look how much film had changed. Look how much mm. the, the, the yeah. even the interactions between the characters had changed. Like, 
yeah, like the expectations for the romances had changed, like, and then the color of the technology just, of course, mm-hmm. was so different too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's really interesting to watch them back to back. And I think the original Holiday Inn does have its charms, even with this like big offensive thing sitting right in the middle of it, which is very unfortunate. Well, and it's also nice to see back to back Irving Berlin scored That's movies. True. Yeah. Because his songs are so powerful and so eternal, and you can't beat that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some good, there's some other good, funny songs in, yeah, Holiday Inn as well. Like mm-hmm. um, there's Bing Crosby singing and Fred Astaire dancing. They're like, I'll capture her heart singing. And then I he's going to capture her heart dancing. Yeah. It's like a whole thing. And so, Sybil, what's, what's your first double feature? Mine is Hans Christian Andersen, which is 1952. Oh, I and, love that. You know, it's one of my favorite Danny Kaye films, just period. And it does oh. feel very like holiday-like to me because it's very like mm-hmm. fun and mystical. Yes. So my first recommendation for a double feature with White Christmas would be The Bishop's Wife. It doesn't necessarily seem to go together thematically because The Bishop's Wife is a bit of more philosophical holiday movie, but it's very magical. To Mm -hmm. me, it has a tone that encapsulates for me the holiday feeling of hope and lightness and joy. And this is the movie that stars Cary Grant as an angel who visits a bishop who is having some trouble in his marriage and in his parish, and he helps them. And it's a beautiful story. I love it. This is interesting because it's going to be two episodes in a row. Somebody's recommending this is a double feature because right before this episode should be The Preacher's Wife. And of course, that's a remake of The Bishop's Wife. Yes, so. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Bishop's Wife getting some play this Christmas season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to love that ice skating scene, too. Love that ice skating scene. Okay. And then um, my second double feature recommendation, I'm going with the World War II angle here. Um, when I realized that this movie, White Christmas, has so much to do with World War II, it started to remind me of the movie The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946, yeah. directed by William Wyler. And that is such a beautiful, critically acclaimed film that goes that shows three veterans returning from World War II. And like, the expectation that people would have that it would be so great to return from war, but each of them suffers from their own difficulties upon their return. And one of the standout things about this movie is that one of the actors in it actually was injured during the war and he has these like hooks for hands. And like, so he's actually playing a character, you know, who has the same problem coming back from the war and like, Maybe he and in the movie, his character is actually dealing quite well with his disability. But what he's really worried about is that other people around him can't handle it, especially his fiance. And he gave such a great performance. He won the Academy Award for that. I actually I should have put his name down, actually. Sorry. It's Harold something. I forgot his last name, but. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, you can look at look this guy, look this movie up. If you've never seen it, it's really oh. an essential American film that everybody should see at least once really, mm-hmm. really powerful and really honest. You know, a lot of people mm-hmm. at times you don't think of older movies as being very honest because like maybe they gloss certain things over. This mm-hmm. movie gets right into things like alcoholism and just mm-hmm. and just like class relationships. So interesting. And I really recommend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. I gotta say like, I really like that film. I probably saw that film like a decade ago and it is a film that sticks with you after mm-hmm. you watch it. So my second double feature is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, the 2013 version. I know that 
the original one stars Danny Kaye. So you think I'd use that one, but no. The Secret Life of Walter Winnie, the 2013 one, is actually, in my opinion, so much better than Ooh. the one with Danny Kaye. I know, I know. But um, the one with Danny Kaye is great, but every time I think about the remake, I think how much better, it, like, scripted and scored and everything. And it makes me feel those same feels of White Christmas because it has a lot of kind of bromance and it has uh, like a, a, like we look back in history and time and you're trying to find yourself because in white Christmas, I find it's a lot of it's trying people trying to find themselves. And so mm-hmm. that's why I always think of it. Okay. So my second feature with white Christmas double feature would be remember the night, which is a Christmas movie from 1940. It was written by Preston Sturges. And I think it's kind of famous for being the final film that he ever wrote without directing. Mm. And it stars Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. And the reason I think it's a good pairing is because for me, it captures sometimes the little bit of feeling of loneliness and then the feeling of renewed hope and joy around the holidays. So just in a nutshell, Fred McMurray is a district attorney. Barbara Stanwyck is a shoplifter who unfortunately shoplifts an expensive bracelet right before Christmas. And he springs her from jail because he feels bad that she'll be eating turkey in a jail cell. And um, they find out they're both from Indiana. And he impulsively says, well, I'm driving home to see my mom over Christmas. I could drop you off because they're their hometowns are like within 50 miles, you know, rom-com kind of thing. Um, And she says, okay, but she has a terrible mother who hates her. And so the whole story spins out that they go to an Indiana farmhouse and have a classic Christmas. And Barbara Stanwyck realizes what I've been missing all my life is love and support like this. It's a beautiful film full of joy and hope. I love it. It is not as common as a lot of other classic holiday movies, but Wow, is it ever well written and well acted? I highly recommend it. Yeah, this one's on my watch list. I read about it when I was looking at a book with about all Christmas movies, and I was like, "Yeah, that's definitely intriguing." So, oh, I'm yeah. intrigued. I've never even heard of this film, but you've you've made me want to watch it. Well, yay! Right, <laughs> I'm here for it. Yeah, yeah. And then my third and final double feature recommendation will be another movie with Vera Allen. This time she is the lead female in a group of, I think, I believe it's like, yeah, three different female romances um, on the town. I love on the town Mm -hmm. so much. It's one of the earliest musicals I remember watching. The funny thing is Vera Ellen was never my favorite character in the movie. She like Miss Turnstiles. She's just like too perfect, you know, and everything, but her dancing is really highlighted well in that movie. And, mm. and she's with Gene Kelly as her partner. So I'd really recommend that for another chance to see Vera Ellen and another excellent musical. My favorite character in the movie, though, is the lady cab driver. Love her so much. I <laughs> love her Hildegard, right? Oh, yeah. she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah so and, good. And that is like number one on my list of movies to cover for the musical series next year. So mm. <laughs> I think it'll. I think we'll get it done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, my third and final double feature is a brand new, like literally just came out this month. So Spirited 2022 on Apple TV, I think only right now. Uh, and this this one I watched it the first time is it gives you the same, it's like modern, if White Christmas had been made now, this is what it would look like. And it's like a bromance, it's a buddy film, you know, there's all kinds of these huge epic musical numbers. And I just, it really 
I enjoyed myself so much. And it's one of those films I can watch over and over again for a holiday season. Mm. Nice. I think what I want to say, and this is sort of like, I don't know, saying uh, you should watch the Muppets Christmas movie, like everybody's like, duh, you know, but I feel like if people have not seen literally any version of a Christmas Carol going all the way back to the Alistair one, the classic one mm -hmm. up to, I am a fan of the Jim Carrey animated Christmas Carol. I feel like that story, I love Dickens first of all. And I feel like the story um, gives me the same feeling of hope and joy again that White Christmas does. And I feel like that's the role of a holiday movie that you should feel just like at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. You mm -hmm. should feel like, oh my gosh, the world is an amazing place. Thank God I'm here on December 25th to see it. You know, like, oh, this next year is bound to be better. You know, that feeling, it just captures the, the release of characters having a growth arc and realizing important things about life. So I just recommend that if people have said, oh, that's a, you know, old, crusty old story, who cares? I highly recommend almost any version over not seeing a Christmas Carol. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> um, I have to agree. The Muppets is probably the best one I've ever seen. Like yeah. a film. Yeah. Yeah. Give, give Michael Caine an Oscar for that. I'm, I'm not even kidding. So oh, yeah. he's fantastic. And then if you're watching that, go ahead and find that, that, you know, jug band, like otter jug band Christmas one. Okay. Cause they're both. I, do. <laughs> I do have to find that. Oh my gosh. Great Rex. So, yeah. So thank you so much for joining us today, Poppy. We really had a great time talking with you. Yeah. And Poppy, where can people go to find your work again? Oh, please come visit me at confessionsofaclosetromantic.com. Excellent. And do you want to give a Twitter link or anything or are you going to keep people off your doorstep? Yeah, I, <laughs> my, <laughs> no, I'm on Twitter all the time and I'm at poppy underscore confesses. Excellent. Yeah. And that's where we were able to meet up with each other. And I'm really mm -hmm. glad that we were able to meet up. So. Oh, yeah. you two are delights. I have had such a blast. This has actually made my holiday. Oh, that's so, so sweet. sweet. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you. I had such a I, I had such a good time. It's not often that you find somebody who loves everything about White Christmas the way that I do. And you do. <laughs> yeah, it's good she had you here because I get too cynical sometimes. <laughs> Oh, you can trust me. I'll bring the sentiment all day long. And then coming Ew. up in the new year for every rom-com, we're going to have a self-help series. And we will be kicking that one off with Yes Man, hopefully be releasing shortly after New Year's. So keep your eye out for that. And yeah, if you want to get in contact with us, please feel free to email us at feedback at everyromcom.com. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. See you next time.